Hey everybody, this is our segment where we're going to talk about the video games of 1980. This is going to be something we're going to do throughout the series. Uh, just jump in every year and discuss pop culture stuff. And uh, video games clearly is something that, uh, A, we never really covered on our old show. And B, definitely a must-need conversation in the pop culture world. Uh, and this is the first time that I am going to step back. I'm not going to guide this show. My co-host John is going to lead us through 1980 video games. Hey everybody, how's it going? We're great, John. Now, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yeah, everybody in the back. Yeah, I, I we can hear you all just saying how great it is that, you, that uh, we're tackling the subject because this, especially if we're, if we're doing a show that has to do with the '80s, uh, this is definitely one of the most important things to talk about because not only. Uh, were arcades a huge draw during this time period, but also you have the video game crash in 83 and then how home consoles later on uh, picked up picked up the ball and became this, you know, the cultural phenomenon that it is now. Right, and just throughout the 80s we had video game movies, uh, well, not based on video game. Uh, hold on, so it's different then. <laughs> they didn't really base any movies on the games, but they had games based on movies... That was like a newer thing. And then we had movies that were like heavily influenced by arcades. Tell me a teenage movie that doesn't have at least one little tiny scene where they're in an arcade or playing an Atari at home. Or, you know, you're looking at full-fledged segments where like in Nightmares where Emilio Estevez is playing the Battle of Bishop. Uh, or the Bishop of Battle, I can't remember. Then we have Tron and Cloak and Dagger, all surrounded by video game stuff. This is when it really oh, became uh, a wizard. Oh, oh and... I, well, not, not Wizard. I'm well. Yeah, definitely Wizard. But I'm blanking on it now. But the uh, uh, Star Command. Uh, oh, Last Star Party. Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So this is a big epic piece of the '80s. I mean, it's really hard not to because they talk about the crash. I never noticed the crash. I was way too young. I think you were probably what two or three at the time. So this is something. Was, we didn't, yeah, like two. Yeah. yeah, we didn't really experience this. For me, it was always Nintendo. And when they tell you that Nintendo saved the industry, you're like, oh, well, that's interesting because everybody I knew still had a Commodore and Atari. I just didn't realize they weren't buying new games for it. Well, that's the thing is uh, with with arcades. What is your first uh, first memory of uh, of being in an arcade and doing all that stuff? Like, what are some of the old games that you remember playing? Um, the very first time I th that I can remember seeing a video game, I had three memories like real close together. So I'm not sure which one happened first. But um, we used to go to a place called Noble Roman's Pizza. And they used to have three things that would entertain you. They would show old, like, black and white shorts. You know, uh, Lauren Hardy and Three Stooges up on the screen. And then they had a big window where you could watch the pizzas being made. And then they had a little Pac-Man tabletop. And I, I feel like that was the first experience. Yeah, because I know, I think the first video game I ever played was on Commodore 64. I, I felt like it was crazy, uh, because it never seemed like anyone ever talked about this game or anything. But there was a game based off the comic strip BC, where you're a little caveman, you're riding on the on his little wheel, and you're jumping over things. It's a very simple, very simple game. Yeah, I think people forget, BC and... was a phenomenon in the early 80s. I didn't know this until just recently. There was an animated movie in the early 80s. Bill Murray does one of the main voices. It's called BC Rock, and it was in theaters, and no one can find it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. That surprises me, but yeah, uh, 
it's like the for an arcade game. The first one I remember playing was at uh, a friend. If I remember right, a friend's family owned like a like a Mexican restaurant, and they had a joust machine in there. And I do remember very clearly playing joust. I, I had a and friend like, uh, who bought one used at like some old pizza place, and he had it in his garage. And I was shocked that he had a joust system, like his own. You could just buy an arcade cabinet. Yeah, but Joust also sucks. So. Yeah, I don't, I've never, I don't recall ever playing it. Uh, the other two experiences that were really close, and I feel like they may have come later because of the games that I experienced with them. Um, I remember going to a holodome. Do you know what a holodome is? I do not know what a holodome is. I don't think any are left. But during the 60s, they started turning the holiday inns into like resorts. So you would have your hotel on the outer rim like a circle... And then there was a big dome over the building, and in the middle, you had putt-putt, you had pools, you had hot tubs, you had a workout area, and you had an arcade, pool tables and stuff like that. And I just remember getting in the pool and then being completely entranced by the fact that I saw a dragon's lair sitting in the arcade, and I had to go play it. Of course, I had to dry off first, and at least i get electrified. Um, yeah. There's that. And then the third one was... Uh, I had just moved to a new neighborhood in Fort Wayne and across the street from the elementary school. You guys are so clever by putting in a, a small arcade. I couldn't tell you the name of it. But that's where I played Star Wars The Arcade, which is still maybe my favorite arcade experience. If I see one, I have to play it. It's it's truly uh, just... It's so weird that you can't seem to find that game on a home console. Why is this? Oh, a lot of them, it's rights issues and stuff. Uh, companies that own them went out of business, so and no one picked up, no one picked it up. So these things just kind of were lost in the ether. Yeah, uh, well, is it because of if, technology? If it had a port, well, yeah, but it's not the same. I'm talking the Vectrex. Is that why do you think it's so hard to get it on a home console? Is because the Vectrex is so unusual. Yeah, definitely. But it's also some of these games and. Well, as we get get along into into this series, there's some games that it doesn't they don't really translate beyond where they're you know the arcade gimmick. Right. It, a lot of it has to do with the 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 accessory. What do you call them? Just the, not the joystick. You know, they had certain things that were part of the experience. Well, you had, you had, you had roller balls. There were uh, little twist little twist knobs and stuff. It just kind of based around. Uh, uh, the the gimmick of the game in some cases actually one of the games that we're going to talk about in this has I've to my knowledge I don't think I've ever actually played the gimmick version of it actually you know what let's just start with that one okay uh, which was Battlezone oh you know I, this, yeah uh, I've played both versions the arcade and the home version the home version fucking blows. <laughs> Well, it's because the the arcade, the, the tall cabinet version of this, uh, that was the gimmick, basically came with a periscope. So you're driving around this tank, moving it around, and if you had the the regular this this regular version of it, you would actually be looking through the periscope and uh, at the little vector graphics, shooting shit. You know, I know because I just remember playing the uh, just the regular uh, cabinet version. Which is hard to play with glasses, by the way. It's a pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those where you have to be there. You have to have that experience. There's so many games like that. Like, just the mere fact that Tron had its very unique controller. Or, like we just mentioned, Star Wars. It had that very uh, particular way of flying that you can't really master at home. And Battlezone is one of those. And plus the fact that Atari 
any translation, basically, of a home system or from arcade to home system was almost always a failure. It just could not replicate it. Well, one that did eventually get a uh, a translation that worked, yet uh, at the same time, uh, I think the arcade version of this is still better. Is at you mentioned Atari, and that's Missile Command. Oh God, the stress! You want to sweat about destroying the entire planet? <laughs> Missile Command. Well, and that's the thing is, and that's the thing is, there's no way to win this game. It's a trackball game, so you're rolling this little ball around, uh, trying to stop these missiles from hitting these cities. And you can't win. No. It's, you can only go as long as you can. If, if I, am I correct that Mitchell Command was originally about us fighting like in the Cold War, but then they changed it down the road to a futuristic war? Yeah, it originally was all about, about uh, uh, Russia bombing us, essentially. Yeah. And it also doesn't have a game over screen. It ends with the end. Well, that's not depressing at all. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know what's it's funny is I, I got, game for the eighties. I've only ever played it in the arcade once, and I wasn't used to the trackball, so I'm used to the Atari version and uh, the controller. You really have to just slam on over and over and over, and I wasn't used to that control. And by God, God, I was just flying up all all over the place in Missile Command. I had no control whatsoever. I fucking sucked at it in the arcade. Now, there is one game that uh, came out in the 80s. I don't think I've actually ever played this. Uh, do you know of a game called Stratovox? No, they're that uh, weird British band, right? Oh, that's Ultravox. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I've never heard of this. Uh, but it's a it's a little space shooter game. It was made by Taito. And it basically, it's notable because it's really the first video game that used voice synthesis. No shit. I always but, thought it was Star Wars. Huh. No, because uh, actually, I always thought it was. Uh, uh, oh God, what was that? Berserk? Uh, Sinistar. Sinistar, yeah, yeah. Granted, uh, Berserk came out the same year and also used uh, voice synthesis, but Stratovox hit hit everybody first. So that's I never even heard of that game. That's amazing. I should look that up. Yeah, it sounds it it looks pretty interesting, but uh, especially these days, try and find an arcade. That's why we have Mame emulators. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, uh, one of the games that came out also, well, we'll just say Berserk. Uh, I never played this game in the arcades. I've only played on the Atari 2600. But, you know, a little stick shooter where you're running around yeah. in these mazes, and you've got the, aside from these little robots that, uh, yeah, uh, go out and talk, you know, talk and, you know, say the little intruder alert and uh, things like that, uh, there was the evil smiley face monstrosity that is evil auto which i it has to be somewhere in the 90s someone thought about that and created smiley face 2000 shitty oh definitely game <laughs> well well it's also uh from the evil ernie comics too they got the little evil smiley button right oh wait no it's called faceball 2000 i think i have that wrong i think it's called faceball 2000 but yeah uh, there's one thing now i wish i'd played this in the arcade because i re- really would have loved to have heard Apparently, one of the synthesized voice things that they had was while it's doing little high scores thing, is trying to attract you to play. Uh-huh. Uh, it would say "coin detected in pocket." <laughs> now that yeah, that is something like that's pretty fucking clever. That I, I, that is pretty good. Um, do they still have that, or did they remove it? I'm sure that's that's still there, but I I've played a lot of old school uh, games. Uh-huh. I've 
I said, I've never seen Berserk. Or at least, to my knowledge, I've never seen Berserk. Now, do you have a lot of arcades where you are? Because arcades are just an unbelievable phenomenon, especially barcades up here in Oregon. Uh, There is a barcade, but it's mostly like 90s stuff. Uh, Ah, bullshit! They they also have consoles and stuff. uh, Yeah, uh, the last time I I played full-on old-school arcade games was when I was like a teenager, and this was up in... uh, Lake Tahoe in the casinos there. The uh, this is gonna this is gonna make you mad. I'm gonna tell you this story. I hate myself for it too. Okay, shut up. Uh, when I first moved ten years ago to Oregon, I lived in a town called Milwaukee, which is where the the I lived a block away from Dark Horse Comics, and uh, I also went. You know, I like exploring where I live, so I wandered off over into the very edge of Portland. Milwaukee and Portland are really on top of each other. It's considered like a suburb. Uh, and there's a little town called Selwood. And the minute you step into Selwood, there's a giant arcade warehouse. And I just wandered in one day and thought, well, maybe they let you play some of the games. No, but the guy goes, do you want to have a tour and look around? And so he showed me thousands and thousands of rare games that they were in the process of saving and rebuilding and, and, and repainting and stuff like that. And then they, when they were done, they're cleaned up, they rent those out to all the local arcades. And, uh, he asked me what I did for a living. I said I had just moved up there and I didn't have a job. And I wasn't 100% paying attention, but he was telling me that I could come in and learn how to fix games. He was going to teach me how to fix games. I don't know if that oh. meant he was going to pay me, but I had nothing else to do. And somehow I didn't glom onto that until a few days later when I was thinking about it. I was like, oh shit, did he just offer me a fucking job? Oh my god, I just blew it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that... Yeah, I, I, I'm very disappointed in you. I know, I hate myself too. And I was too, and this is the worst part. I was too embarrassed to go back and ask. So, yep, that happened. Uh, there you go. Yeah, there but the grace of God went you. Yeah. He showed me one of the rare 3D pinball games. The one with the holograms. Oh, oh yeah. Well, actually, now, I don't think we'll ever really talk about this one, but there was a hologram game that came out in arcades, uh, released by sega did you ever play it i i can't remember the name of it but there was only literally one of them and it's a pain in the ass was it is a vader from mars or something like that i know there was a star wars and there was a vader from mars but i don't i don't remember no well you know you in vegas there's a pinball museum and they have great uh really rare test items in one-off kind of pinball games yeah yeah this this was a pinball this was a this was an arcade game oh oh go ahead shoot Uh, what is it called yeah I I'm try I can't remember the name of it and I right now I I wouldn't be able to look it up. Okay. Uh, but uh it's it's well it's like I wouldn't know where to start. I would be there'd be like 10 minutes of uh of uh blank space while I'm searching for this. <laughs> Hold on everybody. It's basically difficulties. <laughs> yeah. But it it's effectively it was like uh Dragon's Lair and stuff like that where you had to hit the it, the control prompts at the right time or else die. Okay. I remember... It was, was it like a laser disc game? It was like a buck to play. Probably. Okay. Probably. Well, that, that marks it. If it's a laser uh, disc game, if you play like Dragon's Lair, there's only a handful of those. But um, that's for the future, everybody. That's down the road for like 1982, yeah. 83. Uh, what is our next game? Uh, Crazy Climber, which is one of the uh, precursors to platformers. Uh-huh. Since you're essentially... You're uh, you're climbing this building, trying to avoid obstacles like falling girders and residents uh, throwing shit at you, and it even had a giant ape. So it 
Oh. Some of it kind of predicted uh, predicted uh, the uh, Donkey Kong phase that came out next year, but so did Space Panic, because that one actually had you physically climbing ladders and digging pits to trap these aliens. Oh, that's cool. Which if which if you look at it, it looks like it's a cross between Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers. Wow, I was I was fucking with one of my coworkers. I like to ask him really really obvious questions. And not know the answer, and just like he goes, I was like, "What's that video game where you're like, I don't know, uh, a guy is climbing up? Uh, he might be like a plumber or something like that, and he's fighting this this big thing. It's like it's like a King Kong kind of character, and he's a real pain in the ass, like a donkey. What's the name of that game?" And he was like, "Stop it! <laughs> just let the fuck of them like that." <laughs> well, you know, it's Jumpman. That's all. Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I played Crazy Climber, and for some reason in my head for years, I got it confused with Elevator Action. I know, shut up. Um, and I've never heard of Space Panic. I li- that's literally the first I've heard of this. Yeah, I've, I've never played that one, but I was watching a little bit of video of that and just kind of going, huh, that, that looks very familiar. So what's our next one? The next one, uh, I'm curious, have you ever done any really old PC gaming? I think the first time I ever played any PC game, I'm going to say is late 80s. 88, 90, I mean, around that time is when I started experiencing that because my grandfather had a laptop because he was a a chemist for Ray Magnetwire, and he used to bring home this computer with the biggest fucking laptop you've ever seen in your life, weighed a ton, had the smallest screen you've ever seen, and it still had a game on it, but I don't remember the game. Yeah, uh, because Zork... uh, there's this uh, text RPG series. Uh, they later kind of put graphics to it, but it's predominantly text. Right. Kind of, uh, kind of like Oregon Trail, right? Because I think Oregon Trail was a text game where it had a little bit of imagery. Yeah, and it, this one is very famous where it is dark. You will be eaten by a groove. You know, it's it's one of the most well-known uh, dorky games ever. <laughs> and it's... And it... I have played the first one, uh, again, where the kind of had uh, graphics not just just straight text and it is not easy <laughs> well, I, I mean it's I mean I mean it's not Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy hard where you have to start the game by saying that you actually open your eyes <laughs> that's ridiculous but uh, it's but essentially that uh, that difficult of a game where all you're supposed to do is you you go on this adventure trying to find these 20 uh, treasures, but as you're typing your things, you just pray to God it doesn't lead you down the path to get you killed. Oh, no. Yeah, I've never I've never really seen besides Oregon Trail. You know, that might be my first experience of the computer game. I think that was like 87 or 88. Yeah. Well, there's also Rogue, which Rogue is so influential that there's a genre of video games named after it called roguelike that makes sense yeah and that was text based as well because it uh sort of it there's very early on very first ones were text uh but they kind of had rudimentary graphics where you had dungeons created but it was like uh through uh it was it wasn't actually like graphic graphics it was you had your thing you had your mazes built around, like, uh, uh, I want to say, like, 
the text created your environment as opposed to it just being, what do you do? Okay, okay. So you had, because these were procedurally generated uh, dungeons. So you never played this game the same way twice. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that sounds crazy. Yeah. And it was basically like one of the most difficult games because it had permadeath. You know, so once you died, you lost everything and had to start over. Oh, that's a you know? kick in the nuts. <laughs> and and it's like, and yes, you could go and get uh, find find things that'll uh, buff you buff your character. But like I said, once you died, you're fucked. Oh, yeah, that sounds frustrating. And as hell. they're now they they make these games now, and they're called roguelike because rogue did it first. Gotcha. Yeah, it's going to be a while until if you say something in a computer game, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that, because it's going to be a while before I say that. <laughs> yeah, like Zork, I only played, like, say, the last 15 years. Uh, so years after that game was. So are people had, had run its course. Are people taking these uh, these old games and saving them somehow, or, like, archiving them? How do you play this stuff? Like, when it's past its uh, operating system. Well, Infocom just kept re-releasing them. Cause oh, okay. They, they, they would just kind of go, oh, hey, check it out. We, we've done Zork again. Now it looks like this. Uh, heck, uh, one of the very early Sierra games, uh, King's Quest, got a uh, re-release a couple of years back where they actually update all the graphics. It's the exact same uh, point-and-click game. It just looks nice and shiny. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, there's another one from the arcades called Phoenix. I've never played this, but apparently it's, uh, it's like a Galaxian-type sh- uh, shooter. Yeah, I, pl- I played and it. And it's the first game that actually had a boss... Yeah, first game that had a boss encounter. Oh, re- that was the first time, really? Wow. Yeah, because you had these, uh, these levels that were five rounds each where, you know... Each each round got a little more difficult, but once you got to round five, you fought the mothership. Okay. Huh. And so once you defeat the mothership, then it kind of oh level two, and, and it's the same old shit, you know, just more difficult. Wow, I had no idea. I felt like it was so much. See, this is where it's kind of a blind spot for me. Is you know uh, what was the first thing really in that era. I don't, I don't really, like, know video games until, like, the mid-'80s, so this is actually really illuminating for me. Yeah, and even some of these things, like, these games I've never played, but it's like, you know, in some cases I'm surprised at release dates, too, because I could have sworn Monaco GP was a little bit later. It's, a, you know, a nice little old-school racing game, and that was, like, 79. You know, I didn't I wouldn't associate it with, like, Space Invaders or uh, GP or even Galaxian itself. Okay. Because um, it's like, because it, that was one where it's like when you played it, you actually had like forced feedback in the uh, little steering wheel that you had. It was weird. It was a good game, but really weird. Yeah, it's it's so funny thinking about games that came out before that when you just had like, God, just the most rudimentary of uh, 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 you didn't even have digital. You just had like, you know how you go into the far corner of some classic arcade places. There was one in uh, Indiana Beach. In uh, Indiana, obviously, because I just said that. Sorry, I'm getting tired, people. It's a long fucking day. Everybody's freaking out about the virus. <laughs> um, 
But uh, there's games where it was just like you move the thing, and if a light matched up with that light, then you, your car crashed or something like that. Or you had like this thing where you flick the ball and you knock down bases or something like that in a baseball game. And bowling is and it's really... Or like there's a one called crossbow where you shoot a... Um, I think it's called crossbow where you shoot a uh, bow and arrow and it just hits the light in a certain way. It's, so before, you know, digital, you know, you know the whole megapixels and stuff like that, and not a gig. God, I'm getting so tired. What am I talking about? Just bits, you know. Uh, the games were so different, and then the the big jump from what was the very first game? Got space. Oh, well, you had Pong, but there was no, way before, before that. that. Yeah. The one with like twelve yeah, different yeah, buttons. Yeah. On it. yeah, off the top of my head, I'm blanking no, on okay. that one. But yeah, uh, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, but yeah, then then you just like you got Space Invaders all of a sudden in '78 or '79. And then all of a sudden, just things just go apeshit from there. And we're only talking two years later, and the effects have already just jumped light years. Yeah, well, again, all of a sudden you have uh, voice, you know, voices in these games, where it's just like hell. Some of these games, you have, you have color graphics on these uh, on these screens, but yet also some games are black and white, where the color was added only because there were colored gels in the machine itself. Right. Yeah. That's uh, they still were doing that in 1980, though. I, I if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it was like Space Battle is one of them where it's a black and white game, but it has color due to that. I think it's Space Battle. Yeah, uh, yeah, that sounds right. Um, what's the next thing? Uh, now, two little home console type things. Uh, did you ever play any Game & Watch stuff? No, that's something I completely missed. I feel like I saw somebody in one of my classes have one, but by the time that my generation really started playing them, it was repurposed in the whole Tiger games, which were fucking shit yeah which are coming yeah, that, back by the way I, <laughs> I i recognize them because of tiger i never had a, any game and watch stuff but yeah they were kind of res ultimately kind of reskinned into tiger games but if you know what those are yeah that's what game and watch was like not 10 years but yeah about 10 years earlier yeah it's uh by the way but i that's... had a double dragon one that i traded baseball cards for and I thought it was so awesome. And a week later, I'm like, I'm so sick of this fucking game. <laughs> oh, I played the shit out of a Castlevania one. Well, Castlevania was always a better game than Double Dragon anyway. But um, that's for another time, everybody. Um, what the fuck are we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Game & Watch. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. That, that was the interesting thing where they tried to combine practical stuff in with a video game because yeah. they had a clock. Yeah, the guy, guy created it. Uh, Gun, uh, Gunpei Yo, uh, Yokoi he was watching bored businessmen just dicking around on calculators uh, on the train and just kind of went you know what why don't I put something together it's basically like a calculator with a game yeah I've done that I've written boobs on a calculator I'm sophisticated <laughs> yeah well come on boobies alright jeez I didn't even go the extra mile to be perverted I'm a lazy pervert <laughs> But this was something, yeah, one of Nintendo's first uh, video products, and they supported these things all the way until 91, which then became the Game Boy, and again, that's a topic for another time. Right. But we also had, because uh, you had mentioned uh, the Atari, and uh, the Atari uh, VCS at the time uh, later became known as the 2600, uh, that was out in 77, and was doing okay, but... In the 80s, uh, in, well, 1980, it hit its first real uh, killer app because it got Space Invaders. Yeah. 
Which I've played, so and they, it, that's one of the few that translates better than most, where it doesn't lose a lot. Oh, much better than Pac-Man. Oh, Jesus, don't you fucking dare bring that shit in my house. <laughs> or, uh, or E.T. <laughs> uh. But uh, it, the Intellivision console also came out. And that was... Because the, there were other video games, uh, home console systems that came out in between when Atari released and television. Yeah. But television was the first thing that actually kind of gave Atari the run for its money. Now, I've seen a Coleco. I've never seen it in television, but I, I've seen, like, you know, like specials on it and, like, looking back on it, the, uh, the, um, the games were a little the more sophisticated. Yeah, the controller was yeah. wild. It's, it's a, imagine a remote, like, a, a remote control for your TV. It's got 12 buttons, kind of like a phone thing, and, like, it's a little, uh, dial at the bottom that you could, you could, you know, spin around and push in directions, like a D-pad almost. It, it, it's a weird fucking controller and i i'm certain i've played an intellivision but i couldn't tell you what i've played or how i played them yeah it, it seems so counterintuitive to have a controller like that and i think that was kind of what killed it for the mainstream audience well it basically every game came with like a little overlay for that controller that told you what those buttons represented oh okay i didn't know that so yeah you would you would you would be able to control it but you you really had to read the instruction manuals to play it. But then again, these were also the times when instructional man instruction manuals actually had meaning. What I also feel like uh, this is the year that a lot of the companies really started focusing on more than just because well, you know during the seventies it was a plague of pong like clones. Like everybody had a pong clone. There was like eighty of them on the market and it killed it. This is when they're like, okay, guys, we can't just keep stealing stuff from someone else. We're going to have to create our own thing. And that's when they started going out and, and getting companies like Activision and stuff like that and developing unique games that were solely for their console. Yeah, you can only do Breakout so many times. Right. Or Space Invader clones. Yeah. Now, we've kind of been bearing the lead on this one, but it makes sense that this would be the last one we talk about. And, of course, 1980 is when Pac-Man came out. Yeah, I never heard of it. Uh, what is this game? Now, well... <laughs> We know from you know, we know why it's named Pac-Man thanks to the documentary film Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> Essentially, uh, Toru uh, Iwatani, the creator, uh, he saw the potential in nonviolent game that could appeal to women uh, because he kind of saw the arcades as kind of being this uh, place where just guys would hang out and they would just want to play these violent video games. So, you know, it was seedy, and he, he wanted to change the perception. So he, he figured, since women like to eat sweets and things, he would center a game around eating. He's a progressive thinker, you know? Oh, girls, they just want to have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had but, to. But, yeah, so you, had, <laughs> so, so you had this character that is... Uh, there, I, there's, there's a, there's many conflicting stories. I'll just go with the most basic one. He's basically a pizza that goes around and eats power pellets that make him strong, like pack, like Popeye. And it's, you know, basically it, it's almost like the perfect video game, really, because it's the most intuitive controls. It, you know, ba simplistic. Yet the game is really friggin' hard until you understand how it works. 
Yeah, it's one of those easy to master, hard to play. And it's, I, I tell people it's the most perfect game. Anybody can play it. It's not skewed towards any sort of genre, really. Well, I mean, it created its own genre out of this, a maze game. But it's just one of those things where any age, any sex can play it, and it's not so difficult that you get angry and throw down the controller. It has just enough leeway to get you into it for a couple levels, and then you're hooked. You can just, oh, I almost yeah. got the third round. I'm going to pump a gun in the quarter, and ah, you know, I'll get it this time. Nope. Well, it's like it had the ghost actually had fairly sophisticated AI. I mean, it, it, rudimentary in, in one in, in one respect, but also sophisticated because you had the red ghost, which would constantly chase you. You had the pink and blue ghosts that were always designed to uh, position themselves right in front of you. And then the uh, orange one, which would just, it would chase you until it got to a certain point and then it would run away. Dude, okay, so, so the, name, always... the names changed, right? I feel like they changed like three times. In the cartoon, the original game, and I think in Miss Pac-Man. Or did they not give them names till Miss Pac-Man? I feel... Well, no, they had, they did have names, but in Japan, and I couldn't tell you what the names are, but they made sense based around their personalities. Uh-huh. Whereas in the U.S., it's like Inky, Blinky, something. Clyde, something. and I remember there was another one, yeah. Yeah, it, they were. They just kind of had stupid ass names in here. Whereas in the in Japan, they actually were kind of based around what they did. Gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, but this was. But this game also had, you know, it, like I said, power-ups. It had cutscenes. It also spawned the novelty hit Pac-Man Fever by Buckner and Garcia. Oh, this is going to go into our other show, by the way. Uh, the the mixtape on Hit Rewind? Oh, yes. I have listened to Buckner and Garcia over and over and over. I know almost every song. It's ridiculous. This is definitely going to come up. But, yeah, this... That yeah, was a threat, by the way. Was... That was a threat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've heard some of those songs. Yeah. Oh, they are very much of their time. I love them so. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it eighty kind of introduced a lot of stuff. But I I really kind of noticed a lot of the stuff that I always associate with early eighties games really kind of start. In what next time we'll talk about these things would be really starting in '81. Yeah, I can't wait. Oh, this is gonna be so much fun, and this is a lot easier than I expected because I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna know. Oh yeah, I actually have a general idea of most of these games. I can't believe we got to go this long because I was thinking like, oh, we got 20 minutes at most. Well, it's like yeah, I'm sitting there going going down the list like yeah, I can definitely talk about old arcade games, and then I'm starting to go down the list. I'm like. I don't know this. I oh oh no, I do know this. Oh okay, yeah, that's well, right. I played this one. I think the hardest part is going to be if we talk about home games because once eighty two hits is when everything goes to shit because all these other independent companies are just developing games for the Atari without the, the license, and it was oversaturation. And you're talking like for every game that you knew and was a classic, there's a hundred games that are just like, what the fuck is this? And the arcade, it was much more expensive to develop it, you know, for, you know, the cabinets and put them out there and ship them. So I think there's a little more quality control. Plus, the you know, the, 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 the bits were better. Well, one thing you also have with talking with me is I was the Sega kid growing up. It's like I played Nintendo, but everyone, you talk to most people who grew up with uh, home consoles, it's always Nintendo and Sega, you know, Sega Master what now? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, you had, had you had the system. first Sega? Holy shit, I've never met anybody who had the original Sega oh, Master. Yeah. That's impressive. I have very fun. 
You have what? And memories of those. Oh. Some of those games. There was a long pause. I have a Guys very fog. And I was like, fucking what? What are, we gonna, what are you going to say? What is it you're going to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, so oh, that, the that's... I do... Go ahead. I will... Uh, at the same time, I like to tease my dad that he stole my childhood by not getting me a Nintendo. <laughs> Oh, I had a Nintendo. I couldn't afford the damn games. I was always the kid going to garage sales and finding um, uh, older uh, consoles. And, like, someone was just like, oh, well, here's a lot of, you know, Atari games and, 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 and the system, whatever. We'll give it to you for 25 bucks. I'm like, I'm down. I got 12 games, you know, for nothing. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. Is like, I do like finding the uh, the retro game collections and, and playing those. Especially, it's like all, all the old Atari games, all the old Midway games. I mean, at, at some point, if anyone actually ever puts Smash TV anywhere uh, that I can get it, I will 100% scoop that shit up. Yeah, that I, I imagined. Uh, that's when I, I, I'm curious. Is it because of uh, the fact that these were from random licenses and not Nintendo and Sega? That that's why it's so much harder to get because these companies aren't big names and you get bought by somebody else later and that's why they're kind of lost oh definitely I mean there's like again we're talking about Nintendo games there's so many great games that are lost because the companies that own them no longer exist yeah that's kind of sucky granted it's like granted yes Fester's Quest is is a Adams family branded game but someone should have the license I think it's like the company is gone I don't. I, yeah, I never knew what happened with that because we were talking the other day at the comic shop about um, oh, what is it? Damn it! The uh, the ROM comic. Do you remember ROM at all? Oh yeah. So ROM Space Knight. They so IDW um has been controlling the ROM license for a while, and then usually when that happens, they print up the old comics that Marvel or DC did, and. Uh, ROM was owned, I think, by Remco, which is a defunct toy company, and that was part of the problem. And also another part of the problem was Marvel created the Dire Wraiths, and ROM had so many issues where he was in the Marvel Universe, you know, uh, teaming up with them. So it was really hard to get those reprinted. And now IDW just got the rights to the Wraiths back, but I don't think they're ever going to have those issues with the other Marvel characters. So if you put a collection of ROM together, you're only going to get like probably 12 issues out of, you know, what was it around for 70 issues to be able to reprint and it's going to be all over the place. That's the kind of thing that's a problem because like these games, yes, they were on a system. Who owned the original rights? So who owns that tech? And that's why we have so many people out there doing the uh, the emulators. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. It's like I, in some cases, some of that stuff does violate copyright, blah, 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 blah. So I can't condone ever doing that. I can. But Go ahead and do yeah. it. Yeah. If it's not yeah. available any like, other way. <laughs> exactly. If you can't, if you cannot get it in any legal means, download shit and play because some of these yeah. games are friggin' awesome. Yeah, because some of these there's so many games towards the end on uh, um, the Nintendo. You know, you know when game systems kind of run down in the last couple of years and there's low print runs. That's when it becomes really hard to find them because either it's going to cost you what is like what, what what is little Samson going for now like a couple thousand at, you know and that's insane. No game should be over that much and and I understand why there's emulators of these because a lot of people are poor. Yeah, and that's the thing is I I have a old Nintendo. I have uh, uh, to go to uh, reference one of our older shows uh, the uh, 
the anime blast episodes of uh, the the back in tunes the animation show that we did yeah back in tunes uh i talked about google 13 at one point i have one of the google 13 games that I, we got for relatively cheap uh-huh. but that's only because no one really would want to play that game oh i love it's that game my uncle owned that game. <laughs> i played the shit out of that yeah it, it the one i have it's not very good but it's worth it's one of the things where i'm glad i played it yeah it's something just, it's so unique because it kept switching. Oh my god, we're talking about something again that we. Ah! I gotta stop doing this. <laughs> Save it for later! <laughs> Alright, so uh, is that it for this episode? That is it. That is all I have for 1980. Alright. So, uh, we'll be back in a little while with a 1981 run of video games and check us out on the Hit Rewind podcast. Now, this is where I'm going to tell everybody what's going on. If you are subscribed to Retro Rock Entertainment, you need to go find Hit Rewind and sign up for that. I am decided after pondering it for a month, I'm shutting down Retro Rock Entertainment. Everything's going to still be available there. You can find old episodes. But I cannot, in my head, figure out how to redo all of this because we dumped most of the shows. It's not Retro Rock Entertainment anymore, and that's something I just need to throw away and, like a phoenix, rise again as Hit Rewind Podcast. It just has to be done. I know I'll lose a lot of subscribers in the beginning, but come and find us. We're just going to restart on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and uh, whatever your podcast uh, app is. Captain Picard, that is where I'm starting at. I like a chrome dome cappy in my starring track. And it's hard to wear a leotard, but Pat's do. Six-pack apps can do it better than Chat Drew. And if the tard is Picard, is drinking Picardy with Peter Capaldi as Doc Who. They all travel in time like they're Marty to stories that end where they started, like part two. And if you don't understand what I've said so far, sorry, cause armies of people who aren't you get it. They're nodding along to the song, but you're late to the party, you're tardy. Cause up to now, Sporto, you dominated conversations with jocks who played with their balls all day. Costumes and masks that we heard y'all say. I don't get it. And you're laughing at cosplay. The one day you lost it, the topic turned to comics. And possibly it was exhausting just talking, cause nobody was talking about the ball game. Popular people are not jocks. Oh, uh, wait. Now we stand on top of the mountain with our heads held high. We're billions of counting, holding our lightsabers up to the sky. And we're shouting with one voice out loud. the core 
person have to address a few things I left out? Cause first things last, I'm gonna go fast as I pass to assassinate every opinion you have. Episodes one and three are fine, Matt Smith was two, so's Enterprise and Deep Space Nine and Clone Wars after season two for both. It's true that Battlestar and Lost will change their mind halfway, I didn't mind, but Torchwood? Miracle Day? Really? And if you're with me, you're a nerd and disagree, you're still a nerd. It's Fordo 2, you are a nerd and I'm a nerd and you're a nerd. So look around, nerds, and stick together because we're better off steady, stand strong, the weather, all storms, low key, not the thunder god. And remember that you used to be the underdog because we've all been there. But the tendency present to take a friendly attention fan and make them an enemy because their cosplay's different or they're not geek cred. And we get to pretend just if we're all geeks, then assemble Avengers, meet the Justice League and just leave the young ones to just be free to like what they like. Like the geek rap starts, then the next gen, Bijan Luc Picard. Hey everybody, welcome to our new segment of Hit Rewind. If you don't know what Hit Rewind is, we just launched the show. It's a amalgamation of pretty much every podcast that I was doing. Uh, too many people, just too many. I'm stretching it thin. Um, this segment is being introduced as the Scholars of Sketch. It's uh, me and my co-host Tony, who you may know from our previous show, Stumbling Towards Adulthood. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Um, that show was basically going through pop culture of certain years, and we realized we kind of hit the end of the road because uh, something towards adulthood was always about our like junior high, high school, college years. And we're like, what can we do next? We both love sketch comedy, some good, some bad. And we're like, hey, it's the 45th anniversary of SNL. SNL basically kicked sketch comedy in the butt and, uh, and, and just changed everything. And everybody's been cloning whatever Saturday Lives have been doing for the most part. And uh, it just feels like a good time to go back and look at all the shows that were around at the time competing with Saturday Night Live in that genre. Yeah, I mean, it's something I grew up with. I'm, I'm basically the same age as SNL. I was born the same year. SNL's like a couple months older than me, but besides that, we're, bas- we're basically the same age. Yeah, it's uh, so we're we'll be covering like the Muppets, uh, SCTV, Fridays. Uh, I feel like the '80s was kind of thin for a while in sketch comedy. Then we got Kids in the Hall, Mr. Show, uh, and these are just the big ones. There's so many that like debuted and have failed, like House of Buggin', um, the Ben Stiller Show, uh, The State. There's so many that only lasted for a short period of time, and it'd be fun to go back and explore. Hey, who was competing with Saturday Night Live during these years? You know what's what's weird? There was some kind of there were some situational comedies that kind of dabbled into sketch comedy, like The Young Ones was technically a sitcom, but they had these segments in there as well, yeah. which they kind of deviated. They're not really considered a sketch show, but they kind of are. There's a, there's a bit of a gray area with some shows. Yeah, and well, there's also a gray area between what is a sketch show and a variety show. Now we might as well start sure. talking about is Saturday Night Live started off as well not called Saturday Night Live. It was called Saturday Night, and uh, right. it was a heavily geared towards variety. It was more old school, like the way the Dean Martin show would be, and then Hee Haw and stuff like that. 
where they had a lot of musical stuff and, and just random sketches. Yeah, the, the first episode was definitely... You know, it's crazy, because the first, the first uh, the host, uh, George Carlin, he didn't actually end up acting in any of the sketches. No, so he, he just was, came in for the was, monologue, and that was it. He was the host, you know, he was kind of like MC, uh, and then like, he, he did uh, stand-up segments throughout the show, did not get any of the sketches, but I guess that wasn't expected. I mean, that was, they didn't really have a formula at that point. You know, it was just something, it's just kind of an ambitious kind of uh, live undertaking they were doing. And they had another stand-up comic, this lady whose name I can't recall. She did like a few odd impressions, which I didn't find funny. I don't know if the audience would have found funny either if they didn't have like an applause or a laughter sign, you know, struck me what to do. It was just really odd. It was like, it was kind of disjointed. It didn't it sort of make sense. Yeah. Well, in the format that but, we know now is always the same. Opening sketch, monologue, or a credits monologue, uh, usually a commercial parody, three sketches, weekend update, or no, musical performance, weekend update, then three more sketches, musical performance, and one last sketch, and then goodbyes. And that is just something that he honed over the, you know, once Lauren Michaels came back in the 80s is when he got that formula. Before that, it is yeah. wackadoo. I mean, just you got Muppets, you got magic stuff going on, you have like four or five performances sometimes musically. It's, it's so strange. Well, the first episode in particular had two musical acts, four performances. They did have, they did have a, a, a Muppet sketch, um, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, they had like, I think, Three or four stand-up comedy um, uh, interludes, you know, and it was, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, the sketches, the sketches on their own weren't bad. I mean, see, and the funny thing is, I was, I wasn't sure if I wanted to just analyze the sketches or the show as a whole, because I mean, it was very much a variety show, like you said, very akin to like a Um But um, I mean, if you were just uh, taking just sketches, sketches, it, uh, it, uh, they. they they definitely stand apart. Yep. So the show is interesting because in the beginning they didn't really push the cast. It was basically the guests, and then they would say they're not ready for primetime players. Primetime. And then slowly over the seasons they started introducing you know uh, who the cast were, and they made them stars. Yeah, it's weird because the cast was almost like secondary. They were like um, they were there to like prop up. They're there to like. Uh, they're, they're kind of like I, I guess the guests. I mean, I guess that's kind of still what they are. I mean, really, the 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 host is still kind of the, the highlight. That's kind of like it's still why you tune in. But I mean, people didn't really, didn't know who they were at the time. So they didn't really have I guess have the need to focus on these not ready for prime time players. So you know, George Carlin was an established name. I guess the um, who was uh, Billy Preston? I think was the uh, yeah opening act. I have no idea and who that he is. Was, he was, <laughs> He was an established. He was an established musician. I think he was like nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Oh right, okay. That I that song, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, people knew who they were. So at that point, it kind of didn't. It didn't really wasn't necessarily to give them uh, full cre- like the, the credit they they deserve now, you know, or they would command now. I would say. Right, and it's, uh, we had a lot of repeat uh, guests in the beginning. I mean, I don't. It just seemed like every season you you were telling me about it too. It, we had so many yeah. guys. Showing up two or three times a season. I don't know how many times we had Elliot Gould, Steve Martin, Buck Henry, and Candace Bergen showed up a bunch. But Buck Henry, Buck Henry hosted twice twice a season for the first five seasons, wow. and he always hosted uh, and he always hosted the end the last the last episode of the season. You know, that was always him. But they were the last times he hosted. So those first five seasons, it was ten times in total that he hosted. And he the never came back. He never. Wow. He never came back. 
the uh, of course Steve Martin's legendary. You did, I just didn't realize that Alec Baldwin has officially hosted not just show up as Trump, but is hosted now the most yeah. twenty times. Well, I, was it, is it twenty now? I, I thought it was. Thought it was seventeen. But oh, oh, I'm uh, sorry. I thought you were showing me. I just off of your reading. I think you're saying that he had officially hit twenty, but he's. I'm sure. No, I mean, eventually. I mean that. That's what that's what he's shooting for. I think he's at seventeen. Oh, right now. okay, yeah, because I know Goodman was on a bunch too, but I know I'm, I'm sure he passed all the digits, but not that many. Yeah, so I'll tell you, uh, a couple of seasons ago, he passed. I mean, he passed Steve Martin, who did have the record at fifteen. Uh, next up is Goodman at thirteen, um, and then uh, I think then the next is uh, what's it called? Buck Henry at ten, Tom Hanks at nine. Uh, who was at eight? Who was at eight? Shit. Oh, uh, and Christopher Walken at seven. Can't remember who at eight, but then there's a few of people at six, like, like Tina Fey is at six, Drew Barrymore at six, six times, you know. Yeah, it's. Oh, yeah. But looking back, it was kind of fun to go through the actors because it's just they had that one brief moment, like Howard Hessman, and I was so hyped for that because I love WKRP and I watched the episode and it was a dud. It was just like, how much did you guys smoke before you went on the air? Because there's no energy in this episode. Well, uh, the, the last um, the last guest host of the first season, uh, Chris Christopherson. I mean, he was so he was the he was. I mean, I guess it makes sense because he's an actor too. But he was the musical guest as well as as the host, and he's acted in some movies. But he was just, I mean, he was all over the place. He, I don't really know how much. I mean, he's done film acting. I don't think he's any done any live acting. Right or comedy? I don't think he's ever done a comedy. True. Yeah, and it's not really like a related skill set. You know, I mean, performing live musically versus. You know, doing doing uh, you know doing improv work or comedy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Some some of the sketches it showed, he was like lost. You could tell he's reading the cue cards. You know? <laughs> and, oh, that's the worst when De Niro shows up and reads the cards. I can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was almost squinting as he's looking at him. Like, <laughs> the um, so originally the show was called Saturday Night because there was a show I believe earlier on NBC with Howard Cosell, which was called Saturday Night Live, and it got canceled, and they gave the title over to Lorne Michaels to use. Yeah, they they would just call it NBC Saturday Night, and then of course, you know, at the beginning they said Live from New York on Saturday Night, but it was just called it was just called NBC Saturday Night. Is what it was called. And let me see, I think I have it written down when they actually made the, the change. Okay, season three, episode one is the first time that they made the switch that they've announced they were, they were calling themselves Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. Before that, the first the first two seasons, uh, you know, they were calling themselves Saturday Night. I mean, NBC Saturday Night. All right. So the original run, uh, so many of these people were taken from National Lampoon and Second City, and. Um, I think more. I think lately it's been like uh, a lot of the groundlings has been picked up over the, the like the last thirty years. Second City doesn't seem to be discussed uh, as much, and, and National Lampoon's dead as a doornail. No, it's uh, it's mostly um, uh, groundlings. I think mo- I think moreover it's UCB. Oh yeah, UCB. Yeah. I mean, groundlings used to be like they were like big in the nineties. You know, like I think it's like Wolf Barrel and that. But I think now now UCB is kind of like the I name. Mean, I see. I mean, uh, Second City still does some stuff. Still, still cranks out some guys. But I think UCB is huge as far as you know, uh, as, far, as far as the improv improv world goes. Yeah, and uh, uh, I didn't realize that Howard Shore was the guy who designed the whole music before Paul Schaefer took over the band. And Howard Shore 
would become an Academy Award-winning composer of the Lord of the Rings series. Crazy. Yeah, who would have thought? Like, such, such humble origins. You know? Yeah. But, well, I think it's because he was, he's Canadian, and so is Lorne Michaels, and then uh, David Cronenberg is probably the most prolific Canadian director, and he worked with Howard Shore in all his early movies, uh, like The Fly and, and Dead Zone and stuff like that. And that music got the attention of Peter Jackson, and that's how we got. <laughs> that's how he got to Lord of the Rings. Some serious networking going on there, you know. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so the original cast, of course, is uh, Chevy Chase, who left after one season because uh, apparently he was an egotistical tool, <laughs> and his agent talked him into, "Hey, ditch this, and uh, we'll get you something where you're the star." And I didn't realize that it was almost two and a half years before he got his first movie. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's. I think he left. Let me see. When did he? I have exactly exactly when he left. Um, his last episode was season two, episode six, and um, I, I'm not, I mean, well, he did I, some specials. I know that he had a contract with NBC to do occasional specials. I think it was called the Chevy Chase Hour. Uh, unlike his okay. God. Forsaken talk show, the guy Chevy Chase show. Oh, oh, oh. Woo! That was unwatchable. That was unwatchable. Yeah. Almost as, almost as bad as the Magic Johnson show. Almost. Wow, the Magic Johnson show. You're the first person to mention that in the last 25 years. That's insane. Um, but yeah, then it was like two and a half years, and he did uh, Foul Play, and that became the huge uh, breakout for him. And of course, we had Caddyshack, National Lampoons, and stuff like that. But People forget he did a lot of shitty movies between those big hits. I mean, like, you're not talking, oh, this is okay, but nobody watched it. I mean, you're talking fucking bottom-of-the-barrel kind of shit shows. And I guess he had a lot of drug problems, and, you know, it was huge paychecks, and how would you turn that down? Um, I don't know. I just I feel like some of his quality control finally did him in in the late 80s. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what his, what his, uh, his economic situation was like. They certainly weren't getting paid a lot. I mean, they weren't even getting paid a lot for, you know, you know, based upon inflation back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it wasn't, it wasn't a high-paying show. And yeah, like, of course, like, first, they weren't, like, they weren't the focus of the show back then. They were just starting to build up. Of course, by the time that he left, they were all, they were all stars in their own right. So it was kind of a, it was a weird time to go because they were actually, they're all hitting, they're all, they're all household names at that point. I could see, like, maybe leaving after the first episode, you don't know what the show's going to be or something. But actually, when he left, he was a bona fide star. He was uh, he was the reason why a lot of people tuned in. Yeah, I know. I've, I've heard that even today that they don't get paid that much. Like they just get like slightly above scale, they get, or something. They get paid. Um, I think they get paid. I think five thousand a week, and, that, so, and so does the host. Wow, that's yeah. All right, that's interesting. Now, being a host, and, and if you score, you can save your career or make a career. I've seen so many people. Like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he hosted the show numerous times before he got a movie, and people uh, got to see him test out his skills. Uh, Rob Lowe saved his career. Alec Baldwin saved his career. So many people have come in and just changed the perception of who you are. Well, that's the thing, especially if you're not known for doing comedy. If you if you go on there and you kill, you, now, now you have a whole new range. You, yeah. you, something, you know, you, you, before, like, say, Rob Lowe was... Pretty much typecast as like a leading guy, you know, romantic lead. Every, you know, once he starts doing Saturday Live, you know, he shows up in Tommy Boy, and like, you know, next thing you know, he's in Parks and Recreation. You know, he's he's good as a comedy straight man. You know? The um, 
Uh, who else we have? We have uh, we have Dan Eckert, of course, John Belushi, uh, who would you know teamed up over and over and over until, of course, John Belushi's untimely death. But um, I feel that John Belushi probably could have had a career on his own. I just don't think Dan Aykroyd on his own has never been that successful. Whenever he's the main star, I don't think it works very well. You know what's funny about like John uh, John Belushi's uh, dr- drug use? Not to like switch gears. I don't know if this is life imitating art or art imitating life, but like the cold open, uh, like in season two, episode twelve, oh, they had right. a thing where like um, John, John Belushi is like supposed to be like like kind of like out of commission, and um, his lawyer is uh, his lawyer slash doctor is angling for him to uh, be on the show. He's supposed to like be in a wheelchair. And he's like, and Lord Michael's like, I can't let him on in the state. He's like, well, look, if you don't let him on, then he doesn't get paid. If he doesn't get paid, then I don't get paid. If I don't get paid, then I then I can't give him his drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and I so and then there was like another episode um, where he he says like you know he, he's like a correspondent and they show they show him going on location in Mexico buy a giant bag of pot. He's join me next week when I go to Columbia, Columbia, Columbia you know, from 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 a next segment. So, and I think there was another episode where he was clean, and he was the only one in the cast that was supposedly clean. Uh, and of course, I don't, I don't know if people knew about his drug habit at all, like the normal public. But seeing in retrospect, yeah. I'm like, well, the irony of all that. I think that's probably why they did the sketch because you know he was the only one that was probably completely gone. Yeah, I mean, he's making all these references to his own personal drug use. You think it's funny? Like, oh yeah, you got to be high to do this show, I guess. <laughs> you, know, like, you didn't realize he really he was. You know what I mean? He was, you know, he was, he's, he's, he's definitely, he's definitely doing good to excess. Yeah, it's, uh, of course, he's the other one that really broke out as a star because of Animal House. I think he may have become a star before Chevy Chase was, because I'm not sure which one came out first. Um, well, I know Chevy Chase definitely left before him. Yeah. He left after, the, he left after the fourth season. Um, he, well, he wasn't there for the first five seasons. He was the second one to leave. Um, and Dan, I think Dan and, left uh, immediately after he did. Yeah, so like uh, the last one is like I guess I'm not ready. If you if you want to call uh, Bill Murray one of the narrators from uh, players, he left after this. He, he left after the sixties, but he was the last one that was the original cast. And uh, but um, but then also I, maybe that's also because his brother Brian Doyle Murray was right, and he joined in season five. Yeah. Who will come but, back, oddly funny. enough. He comes back as a regular in Season 7 with mixed results. We'll get to that on our next, <laughs> somewhere down the road. <laughs> well, it's funny, like, the, so, the, yeah, Season 4, Episode 1, uh, Rolling Stones were the host slash musical, musical act. They didn't do, really do much acting in any sketches. Like, anyway, so, like, Mayor Ed Koch, at, at this point, um, Sarah Live is, is a juggernaut. Right, so Ed Koch, Mayor Ed Koch does the intro, not the host, which is the Stones. It's weird, but he does the intro, saying how thankful he is to SNL for doing the show in New York, et cetera, et cetera, and he wants to give John Belushi a certificate of merit for um, for his uh, box office success of Animal House. And uh, Belushi complains that he's like, it's all I get is this certificate of merit. He's like, you gave Dolly Parton like a the key to the city for just and brought from Nashville just with a giant rack just like throwing around. <laughs> and um, but 
but he claims he, uh, he only made $900. Uh, he only paid me $900. In actuality, they paid him only $35,000, wow. which is insane. That's all, he, that's all he got paid, $35,000. Now, he did make, so I guess, some more money in bonus and bonuses and points once it was a bonus five blockbuster hit. But his flat salary was thirty five grand. It was like, you know. And and at the time like, they were bragging that um was bragging that it made sixty seven million. It actually went on to make one hundred forty one million by the time this running was done. But Yeah, I'm hoping he got some points because that is low level. Yeah, I mean one hundred forty one million I guess that would be good for back then. It's not much now. But, you know, thirty five thirty five grand. <laughs> You know, dude, like, it's, that's insane. I mean, yeah. even for back then, you know, yeah. even, even if you adjust inflation, that's like nothing. Uh, Gilda Radner is uh, the other, I think, of, of the main core. I think those four are the ones that really broke out. And I don't know if Gilda did very well in movies, but she always seemed to be the kind of person, like, she had her own specials. And she was always good mm-hmm. for uh, sidekicks. I, I guess Woman in Red was a big hit with her husband, Gene Wilder. But I just—it's so sad that she died so young because I feel like there was decades more of great entertainment to come from her. You know, I can see her doing some sitcom stuff. I can be here being the kooky neighbor or the yeah. aunt, or even like the uh, the offput, the offbeat mom on a sitcom or something. Um, I think that's more than her wheelhouse. I just don't see her as a leading lady in movies. You know? No, no, no. Well, she's so unusual. Know. She was such locked down. Like like Kate McKinnon. I don't know if we'll ever be a lead, but she's a great second or third yeah. banana. That's true. That's true. I mean, she was, yeah, she was, I mean, definitely that, with that Spies movie that was, I heard was not great. But, it was okay. Um, yeah, but yeah, definitely. She, she's, she's get a, you know, some, a couple of Hollywood. And I could, I could have definitely seen that, that, that trajectory for, for, for Gilda. The uh, Jane Curtin, who to me was like the Phil Hartman of her era because she was just like the every woman. She could uh, just pretty much – her thing was that she usually was the straight man in all the, the, the sketches. And I think that suited her very well. I don't think she was ever meant to be really a lead. She was in a few movies. But for the most part, I think she really shined a few years later in Kate Nally and then um, in the 90s with yeah. Third Rock from the Sun. Right. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean like um, she was like – like her and Dan Ackery were like, like pretty much the two workhorses. You know, they, they pretty much – Especially Dan Aykroyd, he was in every, almost every sketch, you know, and um, he was just, just turning, turning him out. Same way, and you know, she definitely, she was the, qu- she was the quintessential straight woman in almost every right. sketch. And I think that really suited her well. And it was, I guess, in the, I didn't watch much of season five, but I guess after uh, Dan and John left is when she was allowed to have more control over what sketches that she could put on the show. Because um, I believe Lauren was also gone off doing uh, production with Gilda, so she was basically now one of the main stars. It was her and, and Bill Murray because Bill was in almost all the sketches by the end too, and basically holding the show together. And I want to watch some more of those episodes because apparently she introduces a whole bunch of new characters and impersonations that she was never able to flex uh, earlier in the show. Yeah, I mean, Lauren left after like after the end of the after the end of the fifth season. Um... But uh, but yeah, it, it definitely it definitely took took a different tone after that. But yeah, I, there was a joke there was a joke she made. I think in the uh, uh, beginning of season uh, four, um, I think Mr. Bill ended up saying live from New York on Saturday night, and then she's like, "Hold on, I've been on this fucking show since the beginning." Since the fuck, I've been on this show since the beginning, 
and uh, and I, I haven't been able to say live in New York once. And then John Bush comes up. That's right. If anybody, let me tell you something. She's she's are super. She's seriously undersung. She never really paid much attention, but she's been working hard since the beginning. And if anybody's just say live from New York is battering, and he had to steal it from her anyway. But, uh. Yeah, she definitely she, she definitely she definitely jokes jokes about the point that she's like, you know, she's really busting her tail, you know, for the first first four seasons and got got minimal credit compared to her compared to her co stars. And then uh, I think the two that people kind of forget when uh, you look back on the original cast is Lorraine Newman and Garrett Morse because really after this show, they didn't have anything really stand out. Lorraine Newman, uh, uh, towards the end of the show, had a serious heroin addiction. And then Garrett Morse was never really a performer in the first place. He started as a writer and then just they kept throwing him character pieces and they thought he was a lot of fun and he enjoyed it. So after this ended, yes, he still acted and he still showed up in some TV shows and movies, but for the most part, he was a writer. Yeah, I mean, he's the other. I mean, like like uh, Al Franken and Tom Davis, also were were, were to the original writers in '75. They would also feature them. Of course, they didn't get like regular, they didn't get regular feature uh, credits the way Garrett Morris did. But um, I guess that's before everybody wrote their own stuff. Nowadays, cast members they write almost write their own sketches. Yeah, for now, you you really can't go on and not have writing skills because if you don't, if you're not like a top guy like Keenan Thompson or like Will Ferrell and stuff like that, where people know you're going to, you know, score in their sketch, they won't write anything for Mm -hmm. you. You really have to bring your own material. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you definitely have to contribute. So I don't know how much like say Chevy Chase or Belushi were actually contributing writing their own. They may have pitched some ideas, you know, but you kind of had to, you kind of had to have. Nowadays, especially, you kind of have to have some fleshed-out ideas. Right. I think Chevy, for the most part, only did two things in the show. He only ever did Gerald Ford, and he only ever really did The Weekend Update, and I think he wrote The Weekend Update. I still don't... It's just so weird that back then they were doing these impersonations, but they didn't look anything like... I was... Just about, uh, I was just about to say that he did. He was doing Gerald Ford. If you didn't know he was, he didn't say he was doing Gerald Ford. You'd have no idea because first of all, Gerald Ford's bald. He's got a full head of hair, dark hair. Looks nothing like him. He's like way skinnier than him. I was like, who would have thought that's him? I mean, I, 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 and secondly, how many, many times did Gerald Ford actually stumble and fall? I think he stumbled down the stairs maybe once. Yeah, that was like a running gag the rest of his career. And all you know? those all of those falls end up doing Chevy Chase in later because he had such bad pa- uh, back pain from it. He had to take all that medication. That's why he's all bloated now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and even like Dan Aykroyd. Like, the fucking mustache. He would, do, like, these, you would never be able to have a mustache like, now. <laughs> eventually he ended up shaving it. But I, I, I think I, I wrote a note about that once. Um, oh, I should find it I'm all over the place here. Um, but it does seem crazy because now you cannot have facial hair because it screws up the character. If you want a mustache, they're going to slap oh, a fake mustache it. on you. So, so in, in the start of season three, Dan Aykroyd and Bill, Bill Murray, they both had mustaches in season two. But in season three, Aykroyd and Murray both lose their mustaches. mustaches. However, Garrett Morris decides to grow one. So in season three, he has a mustache now. <laughs> That's I guess funny. you can get away with that unless you're playing a woman, and you kind of can't really do it. But, yeah. You know, unless you're playing a woman in drag, they didn't do it as much back then. Uh, there, there is another, uh, the forgotten member of the first season is George Coe, 
who was a character actor. He just passed away. He was a semi-regular in the first season. He was more the older authoritarian. I can't say the word. Authoritarian. Fuck. The older, more uh, knowledgeable guy. I can't say the damn word. It's ridiculous. I tried saying this the other day, and I couldn't get it out either. Um, but then he would disappear by season two. Chevy's gone. Now we got uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, so, like, it's weird. Like, so, Chevy Chase left, like, halfway through season one. Like, after season six, he was gone. Um, I think Bill Murray... Let me see it here. He, he appears towards... Towards the towards the later half of, of season two, but he's not. He isn't even when he he isn't even announced on the beginning credits. Even though he's, it was really odd because I was I was checking to see if he was you know announced in the beginning, like when they did the roll call. Yeah. he's not announced in the roll call, but, but he's in like almost all of the sketches. It's really bizarre. It um, I'm trying to. They dropped the Muppets in season two, I think, towards like the the last half of season two. And they started doing all the yeah. short films. That's when, like, Mr. Bill starts coming in and all those short films by Albert Brooks. And, and that's something that continues to this day is the short films, what they call digital shorts now. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's pretty bit of me. And, you know, it's a good way to, like, revive some filler. You know, that's a good way to give, give it uh, time to, like, set up the next sketch. Because there's a lot of moving parts. Like, in between the commercial breaks, you know, there's really a lot to... So, you know, get, people realize what kind of work it goes into putting a live show. All these, um, all these set pieces. I mean, you can see it when you're there. When you're there watching it live, you see it at home. You, there's so much. It's such a frenetic pace. You got right. Well, it. now you see them. they show you now. Like the last what, fifteen, twenty years or so, is they'll show you during the commercial yeah. break. They're getting set up, and I think that's really cool because you don't realize. Behind the curtain. Yeah. yeah, like oh, you don't see that that sketch is being filmed where the audience can't even see it. They're like looking over the bleachers, and uh, you know, and then they have to watch it on the monitors. So it's so different now. How they basically you get to see the dressing rooms. Well, there is that sketch, like you said, that opened. Um, that opened what was a season three or something like that, where they're in the locker room, but it's a fake locker room. But now you really do see down the hallways into offices. Um, and I think that started, yeah. I want to say that started with the, the Tom Hanks episode where he got hurt and he thought he was going to die and he starts going through the halls as a ghost. Do you remember that? <laughs> I think so. It's not familiar. Yeah. And well, that, I, got, I got toasted like nine times, so it's hard to remember which one. Yeah, yeah it was real early on though. But um, uh, then we, of course, we lose Chevy Chase and we get update. And then we get the classic team of uh, Dan and Jane. And the classic line, Jane, you ignorant slut. We get Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember if it was Garrett Morris was introduced in the season before where he's yelling out everything. <laughs> that was, I, I think that they, they tried that bit on the first, um, it, it was like for the hearing impaired. Yeah. That was, that was, I was on, on, on the first, the first episode. Oh, okay. They, they, then they brought it back. But yeah. oh, just, 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 to, just, to, just to circle back, hold on. Bill Murray, his, his first official episode was season two, episode 11. Oh wow! It was so, so, like, so there, there were, they didn't they didn't replace Chevy Chase for like another, for like another five episodes. Okay, and then uh, they just they just didn't they just announced anybody, and then and even the show he was on, he didn't get like starring Bill Murray. Didn't even say his name, so they didn't do that until the very next one. It was really it was introduced in episode twelve, but first episode is anything get. I feel like around season seasons two and three is when we start getting all the classic. Uh, reoccurring sketches, which really wasn't that much of a thing the first season. The hardly any sketches reoccurred, and 
Uh, we get Coneheads. We get the uh, Cheeseburger. We get the Samurai. Uh, the Bees. Um, what else am I missing? What are some of the other recurring? Do we have the Blues Brothers yet? Do they show up in the first couple seasons? They do. They're within the first, I think, I want to say, within a, between one and four. Definitely the, the Blues Brothers are there. I love the Dan Aykroyd um, sleazy guy who's always trying to sell stuff that's dangerous to people. <laughs> yeah, and there's like Fred Garvin, male prostitute. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Famous <laughs> sketches. But it's now, not. Yeah, like... I think I think the I think the samurai was the first like sketch to catch fire, you know. Yeah. And and then to make her peep, and then uh, then they started doing the um, the, uh, the the Greek the Greek uh, diner thing, you know. Yeah. But it, I don't think it was until Lauren's second run is when they were like truly locked in on finding reoccurring characters, exploiting them, you know, putting on T-shirts, making toys, making it was more of a mass merchandising yeah. machine uh, when Lauren came back. Yeah, it's funny. It's like um, I guess you know, Lauren. They, they did this one. They did this one little the bit where he's talking to Lauren in one of the cold opens, and he hasn't developed that. Um, that Dr. Evil type of voice yet. I don't know when he developed that speech effect, but he didn't have it back then. There was, there was touches of it, huh. but he wasn't a raw. I see. Like, I thought that was just maybe something he always had, but I guess I just developed that he, as he got more power. You, know, <laughs> he, you mean like the way Darth Vader would change as he gained more evil than the well, Emperor? Well, I think do- <laughs> Dr. Evil is, Dr. Evil's voice is, Mike Myers admits Dr. Evil's voice is patented after his voice. Right. Well, and so kids in the hall. Makes more sense. Do you remember Brain Candy? The guy that's ahead of, um, not Gleaminex, uh, that, what are the drug company is? He's doing a Lauren Michaels impersonation. Well, that makes sense. Mark McKinney worked for us in yeah. too, so. Yeah. Well, and, and of course he produced Kids in the Hall. Right, right, of course. Right, right, yeah. All right. So, um, the final season is where it gets goofy. Um, basically it's down to Bill and Jane are the leads. Uh, Garrett, Lorraine, and Gilda are kind of there, kind of not. Uh, Harry Shearer mm. comes in, who would be uh, a repeat cast member in 1984. Yeah. When it was yeah. the Billy Crystal, Martin Short season. Of course, Harry Shearer, if you don't know him, um, is a lot of voices on The Simpsons. He's Mr. Burns. Simpsons. Spinal Tap and whatnot. Yeah, he's and he's things. also insanely tiny. I met him for a brief moment when he came to show one of his movies at a theater I was working at. And he went by as if he was a hobbit. And I was like, oh, that's what he looks like? <laughs> Such a deep voice from out a small man. <laughs> well, that's when you see him with the rest of the, uh, the band members. Like, it's final type. He is definitely, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, I, I assume Michael McKeon is seven and a half feet tall. He seems so tall. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's definitely the, uh, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, it's, I guess TV is kind of a hard, hard place to find a true perspective. I mean, you can't really tell, you know. I feel like there's Apple boxes on every set. Every single movie set has Apple boxes to adjust how tall people are. True. Yeah, especially when you're like uh, you're playing a character who's supposed to be of similar stature to another person. Yeah. Um, So those are the regulars. The uh, featuring players. I think this is the first time they really did the featuring. Um, We have. Yeah. See, I I didn't notice that till like around like you were saying. I didn't notice that till season five. The credits they started doing like. Featuring, uh, you know, Brian Doyle Murray, yeah. Peter Aykroyd. Uh, of course, uh, Tom Davis and Al Franken were uh, one of the main writers, and they would be the show forever. So, same thing for Jim Downey became a reoccurring feature player, uh, and he he was like with the head writer for twenty something years, right? Or he was with them for a really long time. Well, 
Yeah, and, and well, Tom, Tom Davis and Al Franken were, like, with the show from 75 to 95. Davis was a writer the whole time. Al Franken was a, became, then became a cast member from 85 to 95. But I think that Tom Davis, then he returned as a writer back in 2003, which is odd. And then he ended up dying back in 2012. Yeah, you know, which is a shame. Not too long ago. The, uh, in but Al- like, well, Al- Buck, Buck, Buck Henry just, just died. I just, oh, yeah, just yeah. died in January. Yeah, I forgot about that. Like, just died. Um, and Al so Franken was supposed to be the guy taking over. NBC had said, okay, yeah, Al Franken's fine. And then the minute Lauren was gone, they fire Al Franken, and then they bring in somebody else. And that just seems like a real shit in the face to uh, uh, Lauren. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you get when you, when you leave it in the hands of the executives, they feel like they want to go to another direction. And, you know, they, they can't really see the vision. No. You know, because they're not <laughs> they're, – because they're industry people. They're not like, you know – yeah, and we're gonna see this. the The next time we talk about SNL, it's gonna be some of the craziest shit from from eighty to eighty four is just wackadoo. Um, <clears throat> the last of the people that were feature players, Don Novello. Most people know him as Doctor. What is it? Uh, Father Guido Sarducci. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. get that character. Some people love him. I, I'm not really into him. Yeah, it's. Um... I don't know. There, apparently, there was like a, a lot of stuff with the Pope that was going on back then. I guess it was kind of topical back. You know what I mean? There was selecting a new Pope, and uh, I guess it made sense back then. You know, huh. but uh, in, in retrospect, that's one of the ones that just doesn't really doesn't really doesn't really stand the test of time. Um, some of those characters are still are still amusing. Yeah, that, that's one I, I I really didn't get back then, and I don't I don't really get that much now either. This is going to be weird, but uh, my uncle he's just a few months older than me, so he wasn't really part. He wasn't really around for SNL during the Father Guido Sarducci years, and yet for Halloween he dressed up as that character, and I'm like, well, that's a timely costume. What? <laughs> Where'd you find that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, I, I, I guess it would be. I guess that'd be a whole DIY project. I guess it'd be tough to come by. Yeah, you're gonna have to find the bits and pieces, like you know, cosplay and put it together. Yeah. Uh, finally, we have uh, Tom Schiller, who I have no idea who the fuck that is. Paul Schaefer, of course, everybody knows, would later leave SNL to go work on uh, David Letterman. Now, David Letterman, does this count as sketch? Because he did so many sketches. Well, at least during the NBC <sighs> yeah. years with like Chris Elliott and stuff like that. Right, right. I'm trying to think if the people, if any of the talk shows they did that prior, because I, I don't really recall, you know, I'm trying to think of any of the other, like, There were some on the Carson show, because yeah. I remember we said that thing where he, what's the guy where he would put the letter up against his head and say something and then open it up and... Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a few, but I feel like the sketches and, and the characters that they did on uh, David Letterman were so unique, and, and they feel like they were influenced by SNL. Right, yeah, they, uh, definitely. They, they, they definitely felt like an extension of SML, for sure. Yeah. The, uh, the final person that was added was Alan Zweibel, who not, who not an actor. I mean, I, it's kind of surprising he was even added. He is known for being a very well-known comedy writer, uh, would work heavily with uh, Gary Marshall for the next 20 years, and, and in lots of books. I uh, wrote the Dragnet movie, which I absolutely adore. Yeah, well, I mean, also, Buck Henry, I, he's not really known as as an actor. He I mean he's a prolific writer. He's one of the co-creators of Get Smart, and he's he's written a, a, a lot of things. But I mean, I don't I can't, I don't recall. I mean, he's uh, I, he helped produce like movies like uh, Heaven Can Wait and stuff like that. But I don't remember him seeing him anything besides SNL. As 
far as acting. And yeah. he's not like, you know, he's not he's not a tour de force in SNL. He's he's fine. You know, helps move the storyline. You know, the story long if it's in a sketch and he does okay. But it's not like it's not like he didn't like not blow it out of the water like say Steve Martin did. You know? Right. So that, just I, the, I think just, he was one of those guys. Having one so much. This is what I'm thinking. There are some guys who were team players. And some of them were stars anti. Like, okay, Steve Martin comes in, he works the whole cast, he works the sketches. Uh, I think Buck Henry was just one of those guys who worked very well with all of them. He probably lived in New York, and he was convenient. I don't know how many people they get ready to show uh, as like, oh, this week's guest is going to be, and they fucking bail. And they got to come up with somebody immediately. And I think that's why you see John Goodman so many times in a one or two seasons. Right. Because these people live nearby, they can be ready at the drop of a hat. They they don't have to worry about you know oh is he going to sell the episode, um, you know to the audience. You know it's, it's tried and true, and I think Buck Henry was just one of those guys. Well, see, I always assumed he just lived in New York and they could just call him up. Yeah. But like, but during during one of his monologues, he was talking about his LA apartment and how he hangs out with Warren Beatty, and then they oh. have this little joke in the bottom. Of it. Well, yeah, he doesn't actually have. Yeah, well, yeah I, have, one bit. I have to say that about Elliot Gould too. Elliot Gould seemed like the kind of guy by this point, after being a star, was an LA guy, and it, it is yeah. a surprise that he hosted the show so many times. I don't get Elliot Gould. I don't understand how he was a leading man, a romantic leading man, a few times. Yeah, no, that's like that's like seventies. That's seventies charisma which i don't get i mean a lot of people like y'all about burt reynolds like i don't think i couldn't see a burt reynolds today yeah the leading man or like or a donald or sutherland <laughs> right yeah so but yeah back in the 70s man they were just they're they're, they're trying stuff they're doing some weird stuff yeah mustaches chest hair gold medallions that was that was a, that was a thing <laughs> uh and then permanence permanence everywhere men were having very very curly hair <laughs> Um, so that's pretty much it of what I want to say about the first five seasons. It, it, everybody kind of knows it. What I'm more interested in is what comes the aftermath. This is when it gets wild and the cast is almost purged every single year. Um, but do you have anything to say before we go with the, the original cast? Well, you know, not only do they, like, do they, like, um, have, like, a reoccurring, like, host, like, Candace Bergen hosted for the consecutive seasons. I mean, um... I mean, Steve Martin hosted three times in season three. But, like, um, they would also have, like, repeat musical guests, like Leon Redbone, who, like, was, was the musical guest a few times in season one. So, I mean, I guess they really were just, like, especially in the early, they were really having a hard time. Yeah, well, Paul Simon better. is on so many times. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, so even some of, like, the, uh, the leading musicians, they always had, like, the, uh, I guess they still do that. They'll have the, the house band backing in as well, you know. So, but, but I do have this. I did notice this. Season three, episode 12, 1978, was the first time an athlete host. You know who that athlete was? No. OJ? OJ Simpson. Oh. OJ That's right. Crazy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very interesting five years. I just, <clears throat> look, I just don't think it's funny anymore. A lot of it just seems like it's. Uh, so counterculture that it's like it's like oh we're not funny but we're funny because we're not funny I don't understand it, it was weird yeah um, it's weird I mean go, certainly back to when Chevy Chase left so, so he left midway through season two but he then came back really put her on the host on season three like in episode eleven he was he then hosted so like the very next the very next year he was then a host so I it's so it, which is so bizarre. 
Now, now at that point, I don't know if you have, have you know, if you did any prior research. Was he like a bona fide star outside of Saturday Night Live? Because usually, you, you know, you'd have to have some kind of outside definition. Well, so, I mean, typical. it just seemed like it took years for him to become a star. I think at this point, they, they just wanted the audience wanted to see Chevy Chase again, and then Dwarren's like, all right, well, whatever, bring him back, and he came back what once every year for years. Yeah, he he's on a bunch. I think he's I think he's hosted about eight times. Yeah, until he burned his fucking bridges. If there's anybody who's such an asshole that he got banned from the show. Wow. Yeah. There, there's a, there was a, there, I don't know, um, there was a tale of, there was a, like a fist fight between Bill Murray and uh, Chevy Chase at some point. I mean, it's yeah. not, they never actually worked together as cast members. But I don't know when this, when this happened, maybe one time when he was hosting. But, uh, then they had to go yeah, the, the, the set that. of Caddyshack together. That had to be awkward. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess maybe they mended bridges because they're like, look, I'm a star outside of the show. But yeah, he's just he's just one of those guys who seems to be in a feud with everybody. Every couple of years, he's in a feud with Howard Stern. He's in a feud with Will McDonald. You know, he's just there's always he's always has to pick a fight. With yeah. Like, well, I mean, that's why they like, wrote him off Community yeah. is because he was in a feud with his own damn uh, showrunner. Who does that? It's like he's had a storied career. How is he not? How is he not gracious at this point? Yeah. <laughs> I just don't get it. Yeah, you would think that when his career collapses is when you start to become humble and it just doesn't seem to happen. Some people just don't have that button. I mean, look at uh, look at look at DJT. <laughs> that guy, you know, is uh, no alpha contrition whatsoever. Nope, nothing. There's no button in that person's body. <laughs> um, all right, so that is the end of this episode. Our next one is going to be exploring the classic TV show, The Muppets. And uh, God, I can't wait because I absolutely adore. Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode will be a variety of crazy-ass things. Um, 
But uh, we're going to start off with discussing with my sister, Mindy. Say hello, Mindy. Hello, Mindy. See, that works. Um, <laughs> um, we're going to discuss The Jerk and All of Me. Um, it's going to be very hard for me to get through this episode, though, because I just spent an hour and a half talking about Weird Al with my friend Jacob, so I need to replenish myself right now with a nice, healthy, large cup of pizza in a cup. I'm not going for that cup of pizza shit. Yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> that joke really died on the... <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the movie that launched Steve Martin's career um, as a, an actor, not as a stand-up, because obviously he was huge by this time, and the one that saved his career. And uh, I, I, he was a writer, of course, for many years on sketch shows. He was famous for being on the Smothers Brothers uh, and doing lots of cool comedy shows at the Ice House in San Francisco, and he's becoming a big name. Uh, started showing up on SNL, uh, The Muppet Show, and then, you know, that's when he started putting out his comedy albums, and that's when he became a phenomenon. And you've heard the albums. Is it weird that people know the jokes before he even says them? And, and do you remember this at all? No. That's why I he... haven't heard the albums. Oh, I had. I had a couple of them. I thought you heard them. I'm sorry. Um, I don't... I don't remember. I always think about the albums because I like definitely am familiar with like the cover. Isn't there one where he's wearing like a an arrow on his yeah. head or whatever? That's a wild and crazy guy I mean, was the one that sold like a phenomenon. And I had. Do you remember I paid fifty bucks for a VHS tape of that on eBay back when eBay first launched around two thousand? I mean, I'm not surprised, but I don't think I remembered that. Yeah. But you, I remember you saying, I, have you lost your mind? $50 for... <laughs> and probably said that to you a lot of times in our yes, life. Yes, quite so. a bit. Ruben and Ed I spent 50 bucks on. I don't know why. Um, but that was the comedy special we watched a bunch. So you probably know that a little bit better than uh, the stand-up special. But he gave up on stand-up because everybody knew the bits that he was going to say. He didn't really have to do anything. They would laugh at every single thing that he did and he, he there's no more challenge to it hmm, that would be really confusing for a stand-up comedian yeah uh, well, because it's like you can't you can't have like fresh material for every fucking show you do i mean it's just not reasonable yeah <laughs> so i guess is that what propelled him to try movies because yes. he needed to do something new uh, he was burnt out on it he couldn't come up with material fast enough and he was tired of these big stadium tours that weren't intimate. And, and who knew that he was going to be such a great actor? And not just comedy. He was going to be a great dramatic actor. So he was known for SNL and stuff like that. But it's the first thing that he did is the only thing that he ever won an Academy Award for is the short film that I showed hmm. you, The Absent-Minded Waiter, won an Academy Award for Best Short. I mean, I watched it and it is really funny, but like none of it really makes sense. Because he's not absent-minded. Like, there's clearly something more wrong with his brain than that. <laughs> <laughs> because because he would, did everything backwards and nothing made any sense. And uh, that poor guy. But I loved the whole the thing where he was just like the guy and his wife. And uh, the guy was like, just, just trust me here. Just trust me. It'll be worth it. And it was like, and I did not know where that was going to go. But, I mean, it was funny. And it was definitely like... Uh, like I was saying before to you, I feel like it had a definite connection to the jerk. Yeah. It's, it was, the goal of it was Steve Martin and his record producer, William McEwen, 
who ran Aspen. I think he actually created the Aspen Comedy Club, but his record was called Aspen. And I think you see it as the production company on The Jerk. They wanted to prove that he mm-hmm. could be a lead. So this short film was never intended to win an Academy Award. It was just meant to show that he could star in a movie. And who knew that not only did it get him a movie, it got him a decent budget one from Universal Pictures, a major studio, and directed by a very mm-hmm. well-known... Um, well, I guess at the time he only directed one or two movies, but Carl Reiner. Who's it? Carl Reiner? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so that was probably like a, a, you know, a coup for him that, you know, for his career, if he was just early in his directing years, because he did all that. Well, how much acting did he really do? I mean, I know he was on like All in the Family, right? But no, that's that's like, Rob Reiner. Oh shit! It's Sorry. his dad. Robert. Carl Reiner was on uh, so, the Dick Van Dyke Show, is where he in, in your show of shows, I believe. That's where he knew uh, him and Mel Brooks became friends. Oh, okay. Sorry for my um, surprising and disappointing confusion there. <laughs> yeah, Rob Reiner would direct uh, five I'm so years later ashamed. with, <laughs> with oh. uh, Spinal Tap. Oh, but that's not that many years later. No, it's not. Yeah, so it just... Well, Rob was also very young when he directed. Huh. Carl didn't start directing until I think he was in his 50s. Well, how old is he now? Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense, right? He's got to be in his Eight. 90s. 800. He's 800 years old. That makes sense. <laughs> is he is. He is. Well, he might be anyway. 2,000 years old, if you know that old sketch comedy with Mel uh, Mel uh, Brooks and Carl Reiner used to do the 2,000-year-old man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, the jerk is solely based on one fucking joke he did on his first mm-hmm. album. And it's amazing how that one joke can turn into a movie. <laughs> is it the one joke that he's like, for some reason, this joke has never landed, but I want it to work? Well, it's the one where he and says... it's the first line of the movie? Yeah, I was born a poor black child. <laughs> yeah, yep. But, uh, I love it. I can't believe how popular this movie was. I mean, you're talking like a $5 million movie that made $100 million back in the day. I mean, what does that equate to? What's the percent? It's a 20x uh, multiplier, what's right? The, what's the year that this movie came out? 79. Okay. Yeah, that seems like a lot of mo- money in 79. Yeah, well, it's because well, Universal. But yeah, comedies in general were always very low budget unless you had a few big names. And how much did you say it cost? It, I believe it cost five million dollars, and it made a hundred. Five, and it made a hundred. Yeah, that's insane, right? That's like I can't even do the math. on No, that, that. was I, I, it was a twenty x multiplier. It, it, they call them multipliers for some reason when it comes to box office, not twenty times the box office or the budget. They call it multipliers. I don't know what that means. Sometimes it means I think when it opens, like what's the multiplier times what it opens to what it finishes with. Or oh, what the budget hmm. to box office ratio is. I'm gonna look at this just to make sure. Cause I, I don't, don't know do... that terminology. Yeah, it's it's okay. I'm a fucking nerd. Um, it says right here four million dollars is what it costs in a hundred million dollar budget. So I was wrong. Just flog me now. <laughs> oh my, you're a hundred million off. Well, one million off. I assumed Woo-hoo. it cost a million dollars to juggle those cats. That looked very expensive. <laughs> You know what else cost a million dollars? What? Was the, um, to, to have them all be cross-eyed. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know how anybody can cross I mean, that had to have just been an amazing, amazing technical feat. Yes, that had to hurt. Like, there had to have been headaches later. How did Rob Reiner 
How, sorry, I did it too! How did Carl Reiner cross his eyes like that and then later go back to directing? I'm like, okay, guys, I need to take the day off. I, I can't. My eyes are killing. I don't know. <laughs> but, I um, don't know. I mean, we could go through all the jokes at work, but that seems like it's kind of ad nauseum. I, I want to discuss why the movie works. Why isn't... There's been a hundred of these dumbasses kind of movies where the, the protagonist is a fucking idiot and most because of, he was the first dumbass it, it is but at the same time i think it's because of steve because yeah a lot of these that work like dumb and dumber even yeah oh i'm trying to think of, a kingpin you know and in, in, in movies that oh, have sure. protagonists that are stupid but sweet and that's the difference they're not just they're not annoying yeah. they're not uh offensive they're not just fucking idiots. There has to have some heart to it. And I think Steve Martin masters. It, it doesn't matter if he's playing a stupid character like he does like in Three Amigos where he's just a dope. Or or um, yeah. uh, or when he plays like arrogant assholes like in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Or, or Bowfinger. Yeah. It's all about the heart. <laughs> you know what the thing is? is like... Even though he is horrible, kind of a not a great person in Bowfinger, like you, ne- I never for a second want to root against him. Though no. you all, you like, you know, you they he does make a good um, anti-hero, I guess. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's because the behavior he has in that movie is based on desperation. He's getting old. Yeah. He's not going to have another chance at movie, and desperation makes you do stupid things. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. Three Amigos, he's just out of his element, so he seems like kind of a doofus. You know, he's completely naive. Yeah. And and Navin Johnson is a guy who... Is he stupid? Or is he just so clueless? There's a difference. Um, I think that he lacks exposure to the real world's expectations. And maybe just a little bit self-involved yeah well also he doesn't have common sense common sense um seems to be more of a factor here than stupidity because i know a lot of really smart people have no common sense and you know a person related to you that happens to be three years older than you that's actually talking to you that has very little common sense (laughs) (laughs) not not to be too specific no i mean i've narrowed it down enough i think i'm not sure (laughs) i i think i'm pretty sure i know what you mean yes it's Um, it's not me though it's clearly not me (laughs) No, no. Um, I mean, I do think that it's an interesting thing, though. What you're saying is, would it if 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 Navin Johnson was played by anybody else, would it work? Yeah, it's. And it's... I think it's about his his delicate, you know, his his weird charm and oddness and lack of. Um. Uh. I don't know. There's no sinister behavior. (laughs) He's not using anybody. He's not lying to anybody. He's actually very hopeful and very happy. And when he does have outbursts, it usually is for the right reasons. Because there's that scene later when he's talking to all the rich guys in his house. And they're like, we don't want any of those Mm -hmm. you know around here. And he's like, I'm one of those. You mean Kung Fu's them. And that's that's the only time where he's like rough. But he does it for the right reason. So obviously he is aware in some ways. He's not, he isn't completely stupid. Right. And and it's just certain things like he's shooting at the cans. It's just one of those things where he's just not taking the moment in and actually thinking about it. Because he comes up with the idea at the gas station. 
True, it didn't work out the way he thought it was going to work out, but he actually had a plan, an idea that he thought was going to work. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure the church wasn't happy about that. <laughs> I'm pr- I'm thinking of uh of also like the scene where those guys like want to rob him and then and that plan doesn't work out so great either. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. And he's also so grateful because when Mister Artunian gives him that little tiny shed to live in, or whatever it was, the back of the so, gas station, he's so unbelievably happy, and he, it's endearing. It's like quality. the storage closet. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite scene, and this is what I love to do to my customers sometimes, because we have very, very specific uh, sales on things, and they're like, "Okay, so which?" <laughs> and I get mad at them because they won't bother to oh. read. They will not read the sign. They will not read the sign. They're like, if they see a sign the in the third shelf on yeah. the left side, between, <laughs> between the, the post and between the Kellogg's, but below the granola bars, but above the oatmeal. So in this space right here. These four cereals, not counting the family size one. So technically, these three cereals right here are on sale. <laughs> and I do that to them all the time because if they just stopped and read the sign that said all you know General Mills cereals are on sale, they would know the answer to that. Yeah. I literally told a lady once, I go, um, so this says only the Post cereals are on sale. And she looks at this one and she goes, who makes this? I go, that's Kellogg's. And she goes, well, what does that mean? God damn it, lady. It means it's not on what? sale. <laughs> What did you think what? of it? <laughs> Do pe- are people just like s- slowly but not so slowly moving back to like Neanderthals? No, I think they've always been Neanderthals and they're just exposing it it's more. It's just so dumb. Yes, it's so ridiculous. Why are people so dumb? Uh, this item here Sorry. is on sale, but the item next to it doesn't have a label. Um, so I want that item that has no label for this price here. You you want the four dollar item for ninety nine cents even though there's no price. Well, the sign's in front of it. No, it's not. It's actually on the side of it. It's not in front of it, so therefore it's not on sale. Well, why is the label gone? I don't know why the label's gone. Someone must have taken the label. I don't know who it could be because they do this all the time. They take, they take labels and they they throw them or whatever so they can get stuff for a cheaper price. And I'm literally yelling at the customer. Are they custom- like? Are they like move the sale? Tag yes. Themselves and it literally, you, yeah. I mean, even if they didn't move it, someone could have just nudged it. Just read the damn sign. It ha- shit happens, and they get so mad. And one time I go, "It wasn't on sale, all right? I was right there. You know, I was right there. I explained it to you." And he's like, "Okay. Well, last time we got it for ninety nine cents. Hey, no, I, no, you didn't. No, you didn't get it for ninety nine cents. I used to work at CVS. I know. Yeah." But I love when they said, well, we usually get it for 99 cents. No, you didn't, because if you did, we would know, and we would put a damn sign. Okay, so we went off on a tangent there, but that's how mm-hmm. stupid people are. And yeah. those people are malicious. Navin Johnson is not malicious. I brought it back around! Fancy, fancy, fancy. I'm yeah. so fancy. Um, <laughs> um, Bernadette Peters is absolutely wonderfulness. I adore Bernadette Peters. Like, just in general? Yeah. I, anything she shows up in, I truly enjoy. Did you know that Steve Martin was supposed to be in Annie with her, and they broke up, so he quit, and that's how Tim Curry got in? I think that's how. Yeah. Wait, they were a couple? They were a couple. Oh, no. That changes everything. No, it doesn't. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> My life has changed. What is it? I'm... I'm picking out a thermos for you. For you. Not an ordinary, Not an ordinary, ordinary thermos will do. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, one of the best scenes is when he's like, you know, 
I mean, the one that's on the cover of the box usually is like when he's got his underpants around his ankles. Yeah. He's carrying a bunch of. I, I'm fine. I, all I need in the world is this yo yo and you have no idea. game. I have. I quote this lamp. on a regular basis at work. I was like, oh, no, the only thing I need is that, that hand scanner. Well, I also need this card. Well, I could use these labels too. <laughs> well, I need that lamp. And uh, I need the, you know, I just start doing that, and then nobody gets what I'm saying. I'm like, damn it, someday someone's gonna get this joke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do they just look at you like you're an alien? I, I do it all the time, and I enjoy explaining my jokes sometimes, but sometimes I just let it go and let them wonder what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> the, um. That sounds fun. I don't know if they were a couple before filming, but you can see there's so much chemistry between the two. They're so sweet together. Mm hmm. They, uh, the part where they're like, they're on the beach and they're like singing that whatever. <laughs> that when she song, starts, when she brings up the trumpet and starts playing it, which is completely. Yeah, I know. That's like, you know, you think it's cute and then it gets weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of funny that you know he becomes truly successful by making that little thing for the glasses, the handy yeah. grab, and uh, it all goes wrong. He loses everything, and. Uh, they, they do fight and they break up temporarily, but it's not like the normal romantic comedy bullshit. It's usually based on a lie. That's the cliche of almost every romantic comedy I've ever True. seen growing up is, oh, this guy pretends to be this, but he's not really this, and then it becomes a problem, and then he has to prove his love, and it's like, god damn it. Yeah. It's just but like... You know what's weird? What? Is that my whole life, I wanted to know... What's in the letter that she writes him? Oh, yeah, I never thought about that. There's That has been plaguing me. <laughs> you know what's funny? Because the thing is, is that, you know, yeah. you're saying, like, you know, you we don't actually know the reasons that they broke up. Like, especially the first time, you don't even know why. Oh, she right. writes in the letter, it gets wet, he can't read it. You don't even know why they broke up. Why does she break up with him? We don't even know. Yeah, I don't know if it was edited and out. And then he made or... all the money, and then they got back together. Uh, yeah. Um, but what I do enjoy is that they just needed a break away from each other. And and then they came back together, whatever. It wasn't the cliche way of bringing a couple back together at the end of the movie. True. Um, the one... Uh, what's the one line that he says? I'm going to give you so much money, you're going to puke. I don't want to puke. <laughs> 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 yes, there is a lot of like. I mean, the movie is just filled with such good lines. Do you it's one of the most quotable movies? Now, have you watched Freaks and Geeks at all lately? Like the last decade or so? I mean, probably in the last decade, but not like recently. Why? So, do you remember the episode that Sam finally goes out with Cindy Sanders? Yes. And they Sanderson. go to. Is that yeah, they go and see the jerk, and he's laughing his ass yes. off, and she's like, "This is so stupid." And then you realize they're not meant to be yes. together. <laughs> and then, but but he also realizes it. Yeah, which is the important part. Yes. Oh, I very much remember that episode. <laughs> I mean, I remember you know how his uh, love for uh, Steve Martin through the whole thing. Yeah. <sighs> and how they would like do his bits and stuff. Yeah. He always had a poster yeah. from his album where he's playing that guitar yep. all like with that face, whatever, on the back of his uh, bedroom door. Mm -hmm. the, yes, um, I remember that too. There was a sequel to this, The Jerk T.O.O. No. Yeah, it was a TV movie 
Produced by the same people who brought you the Splash sequel, Splash T O O. Don't add, don't add T O O. Wow. It's never successful. Ask Team Wolf Two and Mannequin Two. <laughs> yeah, it was. I've never seen it. Uh, it has nobody from the original movie, and I'm not even sure if it's even about Navin Johnson. So, because it says Jerk Two T O O, so I'm assuming it's just wow. about another guy who's a fucking doofball, and you know, that's it. I don't think I ever want to know. Yeah. Um, so after this is when it gets weird for Steve Martin. And his career almost disappeared because of the next few choices he made. And they're not bad choices. But for whatever reason, it did not connect with an audience. Um, whew, I'm talking Dead fast. men don't wear plaid? Well, no. The next one is the one where he made a very expensive drama. Musical. Mm. In the Depression era. Pennies from on, Heaven? Pennies from Heaven based on a BBC miniseries. Uh, reunites with his girlfriend, uh, Bernadette Peters, for one of the weirdest and most depressing musicals I've ever seen, but there's some truly unbelievably gorgeous moments in it, and a wonderful dance number by, of all people, Christopher Walken. Now, it's not a surprise now, but at the time, we thought it was crazy. I haven't seen it. I'm not sure if I want depressing, but yeah. I, I think I, I'm curious. It's, it's 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 an interesting movie, but it's like kind of a one-time watch just out of curiosity. Yeah. And so instead of okay. Annie, instead of Annie is he? I believe he went off to go do Dead Men Wear Plaid, which is a very interesting movie because now you haven't seen that one either, have you? I don't know. If I might have, but I don't really remember it. It's uh, he they take old footage. It's it's reuniting with Carl Reiner. And they take old footage from noir films of the 40s and 50s, and they edit mm-hmm. Steve Martin into it. So it's an all-black-and-white film, and maybe 50% oh. of it is old footage, and he interacts with the hmm. old footage. It's, and it's a seamless plot. It, and it's actually a really good mystery. I don't that know how they attempted this. I haven't seen that, because that, I, I don't think I'd forget that plot. Yeah, it's uh, in, a, it's in the Voodoo the, the, man, the Man with Two Brains. Now the man, that? the man with two brains did okay. That one kind of held him up for a little bit because it opened during the summer and just kind of stuck around. It didn't open big. It didn't close big. But twenty three million is a lot better than the previous two, and it wasn't very expensive. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That one was another by Carl Reiner, and uh, it's yeah, basically so. it's a parody of all those fifties sci fi movies about mad scientists. Um, and you haven't seen that one either, okay. have you? I think I might have, but I'm not 100% sure. That is also in our shared Voodoo account. You should see it. It's, it's If you like airplane-style okay. movies, but nowhere nearly as fucking generic as like some of what we've seen over the last few years, this one has a truly great okay. plot. Um, Kathleen Turner is okay. one of the most vicious, <laughs> crazy people. She's so good. And, okay. Uh, There's so, a lot of things on my list to watch. I yeah. know. I know. I'm sorry. Um... So that was a successful... Hey, the coronavirus might make it for no us shit, to be right? able to I catch mean... up on our to-watch list. No kidding. <laughs> um, anyway. So he was kind of on his last legs with his next film, The Lonely Guy from Universal Studios. Um, it's an okay movie. Mm-hmm. It's one of his weakest, I think. Some of the jokes in it are so fucking hilarious, but the rest of it is just kind of Dollsville. Uh, he's just a lonely guy. Charles Grodin is his best friend who's also insanely lonely. It's kind of a parody of what the dating scene was in the post-disco era. Um, and hmm. uh, he has this just really frustrating relationship. Kind of like the way he has with Bernadette Peters and the Jerk, where they keep breaking up and getting back together. Breaking up and getting back together. And they can't figure out why they can't stick together or get away from each other. 
side note. Yes. Charles Grodin is a comedic genius who also, for me, in my mind, is the eternal sad schlub. Yes. Or the jerk. Sometimes but he can God, be a pain in the ass. funny. Yeah. True. Um, <laughs> but, but that I movie mean, didn't make any money. It opened in the middle of the summer yeah. against Ghostbusters, uh, Karate Kid, uh, Range of the Nerds, all these massive... Poor baby. Yeah, but uh, um, Indiana Jones has seen Gremlins and stuff like that. So the movie made $8 million. And Universal... Oh my God. Yeah. Universal cut him off. They ended their contract with Steve Martin mm. and he was done. Kind of sad. So, well, there's a long pause. Like I'm got, so sad. I know. They, he was done. He he, uh, uh, he signed a deal with a new independent company called King's Road Entertainment. And I think if this wasn't their first production, it was real close. Um, and a company that's uh-huh. defunct. The only other hit they ever had was the Kickboxer movies. <laughs> but. Nice. After the print was done and they shopped it around, it got picked up by a major studio. And I'm pretty sure it was TriStar. Um, put it in theaters, and you know which two people talking right now saw this in the theater and laughed their asses off? It was you and I. Do you did remember? we? Did you, were, you? Did we really? Yes. You're so young, I just don't think you're going to remember it, but you were four years old, and uh, we went and saw all of you. <laughs> Our parents took us to go see all of me, and we laughed the uh-huh. entire movie, and... Okay, so I can see how a four-year-old me would enjoy this, because it's so, I mean, it's it's all, you know... Wackity schmackity schmoo. Fall, yeah, like body humor and, you know, awkwardness and whatever. But, I mean, I have very... I definitely remember seeing this when I was young. I didn't remember that we saw it at the theater, but I definitely know that I saw this when I was a pretty young kid. And I, like, definitely did not understand a lot. Yeah. Oh, a lot of jokes. Because I haven't seen it since probably when we rented it like a year later. And I haven't seen it in like 25 years. I was horribly disappointed Uh by the only available print. This movie made $39 million off of like a $5 million budget. And Uh you can't find a good print of this anywhere. The version I had to buy for this podcast. Yes. Thank God it was only 4 bucks, But it looked like shit. You can literally see the tape. You know that little magnet thing? It goes up along the, yes. the top of it. Someone took this from a yes. VHS tape. That's bullshit. This day and age... That's what Scott said. Are you watching a VHS tape right now? And I was like, surprisingly, no. But it does look like crap, doesn't it? And he's like, yeah, it does. I mean, Lionsgate owns this movie. You're telling me they can't find a print anywhere? A movie that was released wide and was very successful? There's not a single print out there they can clean up? Bullshit. You're lazy. Hmm. That's what they're doing. But you'd think that, you know... I feel like everybody's looking for ways to make money, and they're like re- they're finally re-releasing all these things, you know. Yeah, collector's editions, um, you know, full-on restored, and they're adding like uh, director's cuts and things, extended footage. Things that we thought that we would never see on DVD. So many of those things are being made available. Yeah, and yet so somehow, why aren't they? <laughs> somehow a movie that saved his career and made a lot of money for a lot of people. Uh, and, and you know the funny thing is, you can see it in his performance that he knows this is his last shot, and he's got to fucking nail this. He's got to stick the landing. There's some desperation there. You yes. can tell. You're right. But it's not... You know how some movie... Okay, so you know... I think you know the, 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 the unfunniest movie I've ever seen is Corky Romano. 
And Chris Kattan is desperate in that movie. <laughs> He's so desperate, and it's not funny. And yet, it's not too far away from the energy that Steve Martin has in this, except Steve Martin knows the timing of things. He's not begging you for a laugh. What he's begging for, I think, is recognition for a balls-out, no-shame, kind of just, like, gutsy performance. Because what he does, and you know what's amazing, is he is also, if you haven't seen the movie, well, I don't know why you're listening to this, but Lily Tomlin is only in a small part of the movie. She technically dies, and her soul is put into a bowl, and it hits him in the head, and it goes into him. And he only sees Lily Tomlin when he looks at the reflection, and he hears her voice. So he has to have the body language of himself on one side, and the body language of her on the other side, which has got to be one of the hardest performances I've ever seen. It's it's flawless. There's no point where he forgets. But... I mean, there's, like, moments where, like, literally he's doing... Each hand is doing something dramatically different than the other. And how do you maintain that? Right. And, like, the part where he's, like, walking down the street. Oh, he's pulling himself <laughs> back and forth. People are looking at him yeah. funny. <laughs> but, but what he does and I don't think a lot of people would have done, is if you're going to play the woman, I think a lesser actor, a lesser comedian, would have gone for a cheap laugh and played the woman part, though, as an effeminate man, as a gay as a gay man. He doesn't do that. He sidesteps, yeah. it goes the extra level, and he is truly playing. It's as if he watched Lily Tomlin for a few weeks in her normal life and how she behaved. He gets her mannerisms, and... He's, he's not doing, like, a fae kind of thing. He is a woman on that side of his body. It's mm. amazing. And I cannot believe... Mm. I think he got a gold globe, but... Why is it the Oscars don't recognize comedies, for the most part? I don't understand. I don't know. Comedy's so hard to do. <clears throat> well, I don't think the Oscars really have much relevance in real life anyway. Yeah. But I have always wondered that, too. Because it, it, seems, it seems awfully hard... <laughs> Yeah, so this movie was um, the one that saved his career. Uh, it met He met his wife, Victoria Tennant, on this movie. Uh, so it was really important to him and Carl Reiner because Carl Reiner needed a hit too. And he was on a run after this because he did Summer Rental the next year, which was a big hit for him and John Candy. And then he did one of our favorites, uh, Summer School. Oh. Yeah, so uh, Steve Martin would go and do... Um, he did Three Amigos and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and then he was just on he was just on the run now. I mean, he had Parenthood, uh, L.A. Story, Father of the Bride. I mean, he had a run there of, like, so many great movies, and it's all because All of Me was a hit. If it wasn't for this movie, he could be a dad on some sitcom that we despise now. <laughs> now he's just a guy who started two Pink Panther movies that are fucking lazy. <laughs> oh, he even wrote them, and I don't get it. Oh, really? Yeah, he wrote the Pink Panther but movies, also, and you just don't think to be so lazy. In addition to all that, you know, he's written a couple books, and a couple plays, yeah. at least, and, you know, um, he's done a lot of stuff, and he's, like, now he's touuring with, like, Martin Short, which yeah. I think would be very interesting to see. You haven't seen it? It's on um, Netflix. But, it's, it's great. Oh, okay. I mean, Netflix is just sort of like... A dumping ground for everything in the world, and it's getting hard to find what's good on there. That's I true. hate to say, uh, <clears throat> I don't think I realized it was on there. But okay. there, there, there are two um, big walls in Steve Martin's career, though, and I, I think that's the bummer part. Is 
uh, he tried to be a dramatic actor again. Every time he tries to be a dramatic actor, it never goes well because he did Simple Twist of Fate yeah. and, and, and Leap of Faith. Oh. And both of those bombed badly and really hurt his career. Is Leap of Faith supposed to be serious? It's it's a mixture because it starts off as like he's a con man. He has a lot of con man movies in, mm. in the second half of his career, but um, it just it just seems I forgot about Dirty Ron Scoundrels. That was the other one where he was a con man, but that was during that run of really successful movies, and it's a huge mm. hit in our house, um, metaphorical house. Uh, but he did those two, and they bombed. And then he took some time off, and then he did uh, Sergeant Belko, and that bombed. And then he took three more years off, and he just he, he couldn't got get his footing again. Because as much as we love Bowfinger and everybody talks about it now, it wasn't successful. Oh, it, it cost no. it cost fifty million dollars and only made sixty six million dollars. And and I, do you remember you had to ask me if I was okay because I was laughing so hard during the fake purse ninjas <laughs> ending. He just like looked at me and go, "You're not breathing. Are you okay?" I like I was so red. I was laughing so hard. Did we see it at the theater? We did. And, like, I mean, that's the thing is that I don't really pay that much, at least don't remember that much of, is, like, what I thought was awesome and hilarious and was a big favorite for us. You know, I don't always realize, oh, that was a huge flop. I mean, this movie, though, I did know was a big, did not, Bowfinger was not a big hit. No. And I don't really believe very many people have seen it. <laughs> well, I think people talk about it now, but it's people who are really into movies. But, you know, you're talking he did Shop Girl, and that didn't do very well, even though it's a really good movie. Um, he did uh, one that I truly enjoy. It's a very low-budget noir film called Novocaine. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh, sure. I have. Yeah, yeah. that one's very, very good. One of his best. And he gives a hell of a performance. And uh, I think he's interested in doing stuff. That's why you don't see him very much. He, he either shows up to help out a friend like he did with... Uh, I think he's in Baby Mama, and he was in Looney Tunes back in action. He likes to do stuff where he's only on set for a couple weeks at most, uh, helps a friend get a movie made, and just gets to hang out with people he likes, and then he moves on. Because the worst thing that ever happened to his career was bringing down the house. That movie has not aged well. It is not funny. And after that, all he did was family movies. He did that bullshit Cheaper by the Dozen movies, the Pink Panther movies, and I I think he realized what he had done. He sold out. And uh, that's why he kind of disappears. Bringing down the house is really bad. It, it is. is so I can't bad. believe it made so much fucking money. And it's so sad considering the fact that I, you know, like him and Queen Latifah so much. Yeah. Well, it was just <clears throat> the worst thing ever. I mean, they're fine in it, but it's what they make them do is embarrassing. It's embarrassing for both of them. Yeah. Um, but Did I ever tell you... Hmm? Oh, can I tell you something funny yeah, real quick? Yeah, go ahead. When I was in French class in college, <clears throat> they uh, we had to one of our assignments was to write a letter to, to someone we admired, and I wrote my letter to Steve Martin. Nice. Did the <laughs> correspondence? I never sent it. We oh. we didn't send it. We, oh. it was just an assignment. <laughs> oh, so you wrote it in French? I bet you. I bet you that's smart. Yes. Dude. I bet you he could read that. That's one classy dude. He, I bet. I, he acts like such a goober. I feel like he might. It takes a genius, really. It takes a genius to play a really good, stupid person. I mean, Jim Carrey has proven he is absolutely brilliant, and, and that's why. And Jeff Daniels, that's why they're so good, dummy dumb, because mm-hmm. they're smart people. Knows how to sell yeah. dumb the right way. Yeah, yeah, that's a. You know, Pink Panther. It could have. 
it could have gone a different way. And I don't think that, like, it was not his acting that was the issue. No, it's it's the plot. And, and he's not Peter Sellers. See, that's the thing. The reason Peter Sellers works as Inspector Clouseau is because in real life and in the movies, Inspector Clouseau was an ass. Steve Martin isn't. Mm -hmm. He's just mm -hmm. a goofball. Yeah. And that's why it doesn't work because there's something about the clueless arrogance of... Or clueless... Wait, arrogant means you know you're right. Pomposity when you know. Thank you, Harvey Danger. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Inspector Clouseau is pompous and a blowhard. And he's so supremely confident about the dumbest shit. And that's why he's funny. Steve Martin doesn't play it yeah. that way for the most part. It, which is weird because Steve Martin sometimes can play arrogant and, and just like a, an ass. There's nothing more uh, amazing, amusing to me than a confident idiot. <laughs> I'm losing my voice. I think I'm well, going to shut down. <sighs> okay. And we've kind of spiraled past what we were intending yeah. to do anyway. Well, we're not I mean, going to do like a right. retrospective of Steve Martin's career. True. Well, if we did, we'd be here for four hours because then we'd really analyze every movie. Um, but yeah. um, before we go, I have to ask you, may I use the bathroom? Thank you. Yes, you may. <laughs> I said thank you before you said yes, you may. Damn it. I ruined the joke. <laughs> All right, everybody. No, you didn't. I don't know. Well, no, no. Here's what you don't know. There's a delay. There's a three-second delay. So it probably the timing for you was right. In the recording here in studio, uh -huh. it was not. <laughs> well, I don't know about your delivery, but we'll work on it. Okay. okay. Um, everybody, okay. check us out on, on Facebook under Hit Rewind. That is a new podcast that's taken over for almost all of our old shows. Uh, rising out of the ashes like a phoenix. And uh, smelling like a little bit of burnt farts, too. Um, Mindy, is there anything you want to plug before you go? Uh, no, absolutely not. Okay, everybody, wash your fucking hands. You don't need that much sanitizer. You don't need that much soap. And if you need that much toilet paper, you probably need to see a doctor anyway because you got some weird colitis thing going on. I don't know. Uh, Can you send some to me if you have that much extra? Yeah, go ahead. And, and, yeah, don't be like Guy, the idiot who bought 17,000 cases of hand sanitizer. He can't tell him now. Did you see that? Yes, I oh, did. Idiot. All right, everybody. Have a good night.
Go fast, stay light. Go fast, stay light.